Happy 420, everybody. And welcome to Real Talk on this Tuesday morning. Ryan Jesperson with you alongside Samuel G. Brooks, the show's technical producer. Hey, hey you got to get your, your your little pre-show dance in there, hey? My pre-show dance. Yeah. Oh, this is for the for the YouTube folks. We're feeling, we're feeling, uh, what can we say? We're feeling it, man. Feeling it. We're feeling it, man. Uh, are you the type? Sam to be walking around wishing people a happy 420 it doesn't seem it's, to really be honest, your style no, it's never been a holiday that is as has really meant much of anything to me like I've, I've seen activities abound and take part and 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 I just kind of just like yeah you, you guys do your thing this is yeah uh, yeah this, you're is, more, this you're, is yours to celebrate you're more the uh, the observer the yeah, casual observer in this so. scenario um, hey. for those of you that are wondering what on earth we're talking about 420 has has typically been a day of of protest and demonstration for cannabis enthusiasts but I think it changed a little bit it's it's changed it's it's gone like corporate uh, on 420 now because cannabis is legal in yeah. Canada. It's and just so a big marketing stunt now. It's just a big yeah. marketing stunt. But I can remember, you know, days in past where whether it was the, the legislature building of your respective province or if, if you're watching in from Vancouver, you know, the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery were always the place where hundreds of people would gather on 420 on April 20th. And at 420 p.m. on 420, uh, basically everybody blazes. That's That's it. Everybody fires up. Uh, you know, their it cannabis. It doesn't have to be a complicated tradition. It doesn't have to be a complicated tradition. No. And for some people, 420 is a is a daily ceremony at 420 p.m. or or heck at at 420 a.m. You know, let's let's not cramp your style or limit your options here. So uh, we're going to be talking about today. Did did we decide? Is I think it's called the Puff Puff Panel. Yeah. Are we calling it the Puff Puff Panel? Or I, we had I think a, that that's good. That's good alliteration there. A, yeah. viewer, a viewer yesterday on our live chat on YouTube had suggested uh, joint committee, which I thought was also pretty good. Uh, but we're going to bring in four cannabis experts coming up at uh, well in about ninety minutes from now. I'm looking forward to that conversation. I'm so excited to introduce you to my brother Jonas. Jonas is operations manager at Joy Botanicals just outside Calgary. Uh, one of the most talented guys that I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, he's going to be joined by uh, Nathan uh, Misson uh, from Diplomat Consulting, Lisa Campbell from Macari Agency, and Akanksha Batnagar, who's just launched, uh, she and her team at Diplomat, a, a new initiative called What Cannabis Can Be. And you can check that out online. As, as a matter of fact, I think that the website just went live like maybe not even an hour ago, something like that, uh, at whatcannabiscanbe.com, and you can check that out. So we'll ask Akanksha what that's all about. And, and I want to talk about stigma. I want to talk about attitudes around cannabis. There's some interesting polling out this morning uh, that we got our hands on that, that, that takes a look at, at how Canadians feel. Uh, this is from Mario Kenseko and his team at Research Co., how Canadians feel about cannabis. And I want to get into whether or not there's stigma attached to it, how people feel about it. And what impact a legal market, both medical and recreational, has has made on people's attitudes. In other words, because you can buy cannabis legally right now at retail shops, are people getting their cannabis at retail shops? The numbers are kind of interesting, as a matter of fact. Uh, they show that the Canadians, for the most part, agree with the legal status of cannabis in the country. And we'll dig into this later in the show. But, you know, men, about 68 percent of men, 71 uh, percent of Canadians aged 18 to 34. So the younger Canadians, younger adults, 74 percent of Atlantic Canadians, you you sexy minks, you party animals, Atlantic Canadians have the highest support for the legal status of cannabis in the country. 
But when it comes to other uh, drugs, what would be the appropriate word to use? Narcotics. I don't want to say other narcotics. I don't think is cannabis a narcotic. No, the cannabis doesn't count as a narcotic. It's a vegetable. It is. You know, it's a it's a plant. Yeah. It's a vegetable. Someone's going to write in and say, you know, it's technically probably not a vegetable. It's actually, it's actually a flower. Yeah, it's a flower. Yeah. But it's just fun to say, eat your veggies, you know. <laughs> but get greens. this, when it comes to other, uh, when it comes to other, you know, substances, let's say just 16% of Canadians, as an example, remember 71% agreed with legalizing cannabis, 16 believe that the time is right to legalize powder cocaine, as an example. 15% feel the same way about heroin. 14% feel the same way about ecstasy. How are people more okay with legalizing heroin than ecstasy? That doesn't make sense to yeah, me. Yeah, that one's... I, the only justification I can think about that is 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 uh, heroin can be a safer substitute if regulated than a right. lot of fentanyl-based stuff. So we've had so. some interesting conversations in the past. I remember talking to Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith a couple of years ago. Um, he's really advocated for uh, legalizing all substances in Canada, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, compelling arguments to be made around that kind of a thing. I'm not sure if we're going to get into that with our Puff Puff panel today. I don't know. There's enough to talk about just with cannabis alone. But you can let me know, Real Talkers, how you feel about this. Would you, would you say... Uh, yes or no, agree or disagree that there is a stigma, there is still a stigma attached to cannabis. In other words, kind of the, the, the lazy pothead or the, you know, the, the cannabis user, the, the pot user, uh, the marijuana smoker that refuses to grow up. Is there is there that uh, is there that stigma attached? Do you feel like there is or do you feel like having it legalized and, and more mainstream in the country, so to speak, is is chipping away at that stigma? I think we've uh, we've kind of landed in the middle somewhere, and I'll, I'll say that like it, definitely less stigma than before. I mean, you can also think that like in Canada pre legalization, there was just a wider acceptance of it in like you know just to begin with, and I think that a lot of people kind of have the attitude of like this this is being consumed, we might as well regulate it and make it safe, and so I think that there's a lot of favor kind of coming in that direction. I would say there are definitely still some people that that kind of like turn their nose up at it. Yeah. Um. You know that's still an attitude that's probably an attitude that just takes a couple generations to sort of yeah. work its way through you know yeah, what I, I think mean? you're right yeah. interesting comments on the live chat right now uh connor mccannabis uh who's uh one of our regulars on shea roots shea's roots clinic in st albert i hope i'm getting that right connor um says there's absolutely a stigma and he goes on to say legalize all drugs stephanie says there's absolutely a lot of stigma still that lala's as with a fair question are legalizing and decriminalizing the same thing and of course they're not uh, they're along the same lines, but you could decriminalize something. In other words, you may get like a bylaw ticket uh, or, or some sort of citation for possession as opposed to a criminal record or a criminal charge. Uh, but it would be different, of course. And then th there's a conversation to be had there as well. Um, you know, James says legalization allows for proper research and production. Decriminalization still leaves the substance in the hands of the criminals. Well, get this. I mean, speaking of the criminals, <laughs> uh, let's say, well, I mean, so let's say the gray market. If there's such a thing at gray market, but when Canadians are asked where they're getting their cannabis, Canadians who have consumed cannabis after legalization asked where they bought their product and just under two in five, about 38 percent say that they acquire all of their cannabis at licensed retailers. So so fewer than 40 percent of cannabis users in Canada, the cannabis users that were polled here as a part of this research coast study, fewer than 40 percent buy it all legally 
31% say they buy some of their product at a licensed retailer, and 20% say none of it comes from a licensed retailer. In other words, one in five are getting it all from, from their guy, so to speak. <laughs> you know, getting it in plastic baggies or mason jars or, or however you're getting it. So, when, and I actually think that number's low. I bet that number's actually quite a bit higher of people that are still. So we'll ask our, our Puff Puff panel coming up in about, uh, I don't know what it is, 80 minutes or so from now. If you're, if you're listening live, it'll be around noon Eastern, 10 o'clock Mountain Time. That'll be great. In 20 minutes from now, we're going to be talking about the federal budget delivered yesterday uh, by Finance Minister Christian Freeland. There's some interesting points being made. Um, I, uh, why am I double clutching on this? Should I be real? I'll be real for a second. Uh, I, I saw some reporting. Yes, I, I feel a little bit and I'm not trying to be. Oh, boy. Why am I getting into this? Because it's live. That's why I'm not trying to be the guy that's like, what can you even say anymore? I'm not that guy. If you listen to this program regularly, if you watch it, you know, I'm not that guy. What can, it's like I can't say anything anymore. Um, but I do double clutch sometimes on some things. You remember on our International Women's Day show, Jen Latta joined us, the Emmy Award winner. And uh, just a remarkable uh, professional she is. She hosts a radio show in Milwaukee. She's an Emmy Award winning sideline reporter for College Game Day for ESPN. She's on the road all the time. And uh, and do you remember we were talking to her and she said one of the things that was really great about her job, one of the things she loves about working early morning radio is that she can be home when her daughters wake up. She says there's this great work life balance. And then I asked her about her work life balance after she said that. And some people got upset. Um, which is fair. And I'm actually not really interested in kind of getting into it. Uh, but but people were like, Ryan, you know, you wouldn't ask a man about his work life balance. You wouldn't ask whatever, um, which I digress. Actually, maybe I would. But but not the point. Fast forward to last night and there's reporting on this federal budget. And I wasn't sure if like so it was a point. It was an interesting point to be made by reporters saying that, you know, the deputy prime minister, the finance minister, Christian Freeland is delivering the first budget delivered by a working mom and i'm sitting there going that's an interesting fact because it ties into investments in child care this this ten dollar child care that the liberals say that they're endeavoring to get toward over the next number of years next five years they say they're hoping to have that in of course there will be an election between now and then the conclusion of that five years but i started wondering i started going is it like is it kosher for people to be reporting that like pointing out that it's the first budget delivered by a working mom Oh, I think so. I think that's entirely but are, relevant. Yeah, but people are yeah. going to say, here's two white dudes talking about whether or not it's okay to say it. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Okay, fine. I'm just a little, and I'm just keeping it real yeah. here, and I'm not being the guy that says you can't say anything anymore, but I'm just curious. I'm just curious if that's an okay thing to point out, because I think it's an interesting angle. I think that Christian Freeland, you have to assume, uh, and not just her, but other parents in that liberal cabinet, in that liberal caucus, would have that as a top priority based on their personal experience. But that goes way big into like a macro view of politics that basically, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Representation matters. You know, having a working mother as the sitting finance minister is going to see things a little bit differently than an old white banker will see things. Yeah. So... No, I think that that is 100% valid and it shows that, you know, there's there's going to be some things in this budget that we've never seen before because we finally have a different perspective presenting it. I don't think that that's yeah. a, a thing that we need to stray away from. I at love all. this like Tanya on the live chat sa- Tanya on the live chat says, "Hell yeah, working moms. I love it." And Kim says, "Let's uh, let's own and honor 
that we have the first female finance minister delivering a budget. Own it. That's good, says Kim. And then she throws in, yes, yes, yes. I love it. Kim's like just cheering. She's cheering on Christian Freeland. Or, 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 or well, I don't know if I should say that. Maybe Kim's going to say, hey, hey, don't bring politics into this. I'm just supporting her. Uh, but, uh, but I think it's great. And, and actually, I'm uh, quite impressed uh, by Christian Freeland's presentation of the budget. The budget itself... I'm curious to know how real talkers are going to feel about it. And I'm curious to know how our panel is going to feel about it. Jason Hatcher is joining us from Navigator. Uh, Deirdre Mitchell McLean, who does that Women of Alberta Poly podcast, Political R&D. And then Semhar Tekest will join us about halfway through our conversation from Enterprise. Semhar is doing like she's got meetings all morning. And I, we somehow fandangled. We somehow convinced her to join us for like 25 minutes right in the middle of it. And I'm so grateful for that. She's got a great perspective. Um, having formerly she quarterbacked a lot of stuff for Andrew Shear back in the day and, and ran a lot of their messaging for the 2015, the conservative election campaign. So we're going to see how, you know, I mean, how. How do audience members feel about that budget? It's a big one. Uh, I mean, numbers don't even seem real in a COVID era. You, you talk about the, the budget of, of the current year. Uh, the deficit, you know, is, is going to top three hundred and fifty four billion dollars. That's the deficit, not the budget. And then it'll drop to one hundred and fifty four billion. Like To put that into perspective, you remember when Justin Trudeau ran for office in 2015 and promised that the deficit would be 10 billion or less it wasn't it was about 30 but he promised it would be 10 billion or less that puts into perspective 154 billion 354 billion but obviously right it's it's covid what are you going to do what are we going to say so here's where you have to figure out where i think the debate lies is exiting out of covid19 and let's not get ahead of ourselves here but as Canada starts to and, and as Canadians start to discuss a post pandemic recovery and start to look beyond this hellscape that has been the past year, a year and a half, uh, how much are we willing to give our governments the long leash to continue to spend like it's pandemic time? And at what point do you say we're out of that now and now it's time where the recovery begins and, and how do we do that intuitively and what does that look like? getting more young people into the workforce, making it possible for more women to get into the workforce, making sure that black indigenous people of color and entrepreneurs have uh, resources available to them that, that can kickstart economic activity in a lot of uh, communities that might not otherwise see it or that would have a ton of potential, but but would require a bit of that kickstart, that investment. So I want to hit this budget from a bunch of different angles. Sometimes budget talk, your eyes can glaze over a little bit, but um but I'm looking forward to seeing what real talkers have to say about this. Well, obviously, uh, Kaylin makes a great point, by the way, that uh, that newspaper headline. Did you see this? She says the new p- newspaper with the headline Miss Spend with Christia Freeland on it. She says so misogynistic. Did you see that? M.I.S.S. Like I didn't. I assume it was a sun outlet that did it. <laughs> I'm, that, that sounds like a Toronto Sun headline. You said that with such confidence. And Sam, <laughs> you are right. Yeah, <laughs> you are. Uh, what did, how did Chris Farley used to say it? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Miss Spend. It reminds me of those Roger Hargraves books, like Little Little Miss. What were they yeah, called? Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, like I know what you're about. Yeah. Mr. Whatever yeah. and Little Miss A or whatever yeah. they were. Those great books for kids. So, uh, so let us know what you're thinking. We're obviously going to be keeping an eye on the hashtag uh, Real Talk RJ. We've got a couple exciting announcements as well. Wanted to let you know that that uh, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Why did I wait until 15 minutes into the show to mention this? This is going to be the biggest part of our day today. Yeah, we've got a special broadcast event coming up today. Real talkers, not during the show right now, uh, not in the next 90 minutes. But if you'll join us right back here 
We're going to be live on our Mixler audio app. We're going to be live on our YouTube channel. You just go to RyanJesperson.com to find both of them. We will be live with the Prime Minister exclusively, one-on-one, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today at 2.45 Pacific at 5.45 Eastern. Okay, so 3.45 hour time, 3.45 mountain time today. We will sit down with uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. We've got about 15 minutes with him. Um, I've, I've got my questions locked and loaded, and we'll try to cover as much ground as we can. That'll be a special broadcast event, and we're very, very much looking forward to that. It's not too late to send your questions in. Um, I know a lot of you would like us to ask him, and we will, would like us to ask him about universal basic income. There were some things not included in this budget including a UBI, universal basic income, including pharmacare. And of course, we're going to ask the prime minister about both of those. We should probably officially start our show 16 minutes in. So why don't we remind you that the team at Bitcoin Well is here each and every day as our presenting sponsor. We're sure grateful for it. When it comes to your own family's budget, what plans do you have in place for integrating crypto, cryptocurrency into any savings plan or any financial sovereignty strategy? The team at Bitcoin Well has this rule around 1%, and I know they'd love to talk to you about it. If you're intrigued and you'd like to talk to the experts based right here in Edmonton, Alberta, you can find Bitcoin Well right at the top of the sponsors page at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I love this from Michelle. Michelle Wong this morning on our live chat says, woohoo. She says, I'm so proud of this podcast. Like I had anything to do with it. You did, Michelle. You turned up and watched every you day. Did. You did everything to do with you it. You show up. This audience, if we don't have audience members, if the show's not growing, we're not getting big interviews. And uh, if we don't, you know, if we can't flex our big interviews, then we don't get the bigger interviews. Um, but we are excited, as far as we know, to be the only... Can we call ourselves Broadcast Outlet? I like... I toe the line. I always say to, to real talkers, I say, thanks for tuning in. And people are like, well, you're not technically tuning in. It's just so fun to say. Well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think anybody's tuned into anything for a long time. There's a That's very true. small selective equipment that we actually have to tune nowadays. I kind of miss that. Yeah. I was always very proud of myself. I always felt like as a kid, like I could really hit that sweet spot on the tuner on the dashboard of the car. I was really good at finding the sweet spot. You know what I mean? Yesterday, what a conversation with Brianna and Peter Phipps. They told us uh, in, in, by the way, in courageous fashion, how they escaped the cult that they were born into uh, right here in in central northern Alberta. If you missed that conversation, you're going to want to check it out. You have to hear the full conversation. You can check out their website, Reset dash ish.com it's their reset ish and brianna explained to us what that means we knew that we would have an interesting response to that interview we knew that that it would resonate with people and and we received some personal messages these are some of the ones that really mean a lot to us where, where audience members will say this isn't to be read on the air this is just for you guys to know this is for background information this is a point of interest we got some of those yesterday uh, one in particular that was very difficult to read and and let, let, let me just say that there are more audience members uh, than just Brianna and Peter that were demonstrating courage yesterday. Let me tell you that for a lot of people, um, you told us one letter in particular is really difficult for you to listen to that interview yesterday because you found yourself in a similar situation. I love this. This one from Anna. I wanted to read this. Anna said, I wanted to reach out uh, to Real Talkers. I wanted to thank you guys for for that incredible interview with Brianna and Peter. 
Anna says, I was raised in that church as well. I was one of the, the first generation. My parents are founding members, and I felt compelled to write to you as I don't share this story with many people, but I feel like you listened with grace, and I appreciated the perspective. Anna says, I left in 2001. I was 23 years old. I'd been married in that church when I was 19. My husband, 20, was very mentally ill, diagnosed with schizophrenia about a year into our marriage. It was an extremely abusive marriage physically and emotionally. And when he left me two years after we married and I was facing a divorce at the age of 21, I was told that under no circumstance could I remarry because I was a woman. My husband could remarry, but I was not allowed to. And during the course of the marriage, I had lost three pregnancies. And the only thing that I've been raised to do was marry and have kids. It took about a year. But I remember with startling clarity, the moment it occurred to me, that maybe I could leave and attempt to have a full life like a lightning bolt, says Anna, out of the blue. And I grabbed hold of that hope and I ran with it. And I'm blessed with a lot of musical talent, she says. And I'd been a leader in the church's music department since I was an early teen. So it wasn't like I was a background figure. I was the first of all my friends to leave. And the experience of that excommunication, we heard about that yesterday, essentially being expelled from the community, um, the experience of that excommunication w- was one that was excruciating to go through, both mentally and emotionally. My parents and my family were cut off from me. They were instructed not to speak to me, not to support me in any way. In fact, when I left, my dad sat me down and explained very calmly that they would never be close to me again. Can you imagine? That they would never be close to my children if I had any. And that if I had kids out of wedlock, that they would not be acknowledged. It took about 15 years, says Anna, for me to fully deal with and come to peace with the fact that I would never have a relationship with my parents. I've made major life decisions based on trying to regain their approval and their closeness, even though I never will, short of returning to this church community. Eventually, I went to university and I became a school teacher and I'm also a professional musician. And I've had the incredible fortune, says Anna, to travel all over the world and play and sing for audiences as a solo show and as a dueling piano player. I've raised a, a gorgeous young man. He turns 17 next week and I'm in a wonderful, happy place. So I feel compelled to let you know the story has a happy ending. The mental and emotional toll that leaving took on me is immeasurable and perhaps it doesn't even sound that bad to the average person but you're shining a light on something that so many people are caught in and struggle with and i appreciate that says anna she says i'll consider myself a dedicated real talker from now on wow that's amazing to get a letter like that from somebody anna so grateful keith wrote in to say thank you for today's show thank you for that interview with brianna and peter phipps I was in a a local Japanese Buddhist cult, says Keith, for 15 years. I left 20 years ago, but I still feel like I want to go back. I realize how insane the experience was, but I think still, says Keith, that part of my brain is still hardwired into it. He says, I've tried to go back a few times, even though I don't believe anymore at times of despair, and I've been refused. I'm shunned. Rational thinking has helped my own reset-ish, but on an emotional level, the connection never goes away, and hearing the Phipps family speak openly helped me think about it all again. It was painful yesterday, says Keith, but it was good. He says, I'm eager to check out their new podcast, and thank you for the good work on Real Talk. 
absolutely amazing stuff. I mean, people just really, you know, right now in our live chat, you know, Judy says, imagine picking religion over your own child. Says it just blows my mind. Others are saying the same thing, but, you know, Michelle goes on to say the comment they made yesterday about being required to pay into the church before putting food on the family's table. Really difficult to hear. Joanne says heartbreaking how you can choose religion over your children. So sad. I don't think I can explain it, but I think we got a really clear idea yesterday of of the depth of the commitment here to the cause, to the to the spiritual leader, to you might say the cult leader. Right. To the point where families, I mean, family members are being excommunicated, expelled from community and then ostracized and bullied. And I feel like I'm speaking to a whole bunch of people this morning that heard the interview. So I know we don't have to circle back and explain it all. But I mean, how powerful was it even for Brianna to have some of the, the slurs and the insults and the, the derogatory, the, the, the horrific words that had been hurled her way? She put them on a T-shirt and she put it on a T-shirt. Yeah. And she walks around and just owns it. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's remarkable seeing the way she's, she's just picked that up and run with it. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. Deborah says, I got to listen to that replay. Absolutely. <laughs> Judy said it was so brave to go public. And Starlight Sessions says, I got in touch with Brianna on Instagram and they're going to come to the venue when we can do concerts again. Fantastic. I can't wait for that. I can't wait to get back to normal. Can I say um, it feels weird to bring it up? But I'm so thrilled to have been able to get my vaccine yesterday. I got my first shot of the I AstraZeneca I don't, I don't vaccine yesterday. Can, uh, I don't think you should be shy about uh, about uh, bragging about that. I That's was exciting. so I got a tip from a friend that said, you know, Alberta and Ontario have have lowered the age for the AZ vaccine. And so if you're over 40, uh, you're able to get it now. It was, it was cut off at 55 before. And a buddy of mine says they had him. He says they had you can walk right in and get it. And so I did. I basically dropped everything yesterday and went and got it. And it was quite an experience. I wanted to talk about it for a second. It First of all, several people reached out to me because I, I posted a photo and on purpose. And, and I got no time for the haters that are saying, like, keep your vaccine, keep your inoculation selfies to yourself. No way. Um, I was thrilled to put mine out there on purpose to blast it out publicly and say, I'm proud to have gotten this vaccine. Uh, the vaccine is safe. The vaccine, in my mind, is the responsible thing to do. Put it in me, get it in my veins, get it in my body. And when I posted the photo, uh, a couple of people reached out to me with, I thought, quite, I, I thought that their comments were very fair. And they said, that's great that you were able to get it, but it's a real shame that teachers and firefighters still don't. They're not qualifying. Firefighters, teachers are not qualifying to get the vaccine, the vaccine and unless they're of that age. So if you're over 40, yeah, with, you know, if you're a fireman uh, or if you're a, you know, a, 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 an, an Internet radio host, uh, if you're over 40, you can go get it right now. But some people are saying, you know, I do think that the firefighters and teachers should be at the front of the line to get those. And I said, you know what? I 100 percent agree. I absolutely and 100 percent agree. But it is quite an experience to sit in that room. Uh, let me just say for a second. And and the guy, the, the, the health professional, um, I don't know if he's a pharmacist or what he was, but uh, perhaps a nurse um, brings in this vial. And I'm looking at it and I'm and, and it's just it's just this little glass vial and it says AstraZeneca on the side, COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm looking at it and I'm going that like this little vial represents like, like it's like half the size of my pinky. I'm like it represents something so huge. This represents a global effort to to share 
scientific discovery to collaborate, to work together, to have different uh, researchers pushing one another, competing in a healthy way to get that vaccine done and tested and approved and then distributed as soon as possible. And I had, I wouldn't say like an emotional experience with it. That wouldn't be accurate. But I, I had a moment where I was just staring at that vial on the table, just thinking, going a little bit meta on on what it represented and and what it meant. And I was thinking, you know what? Six months ago, somebody with means, there are people on planet Earth six months ago that would have paid a million dollars for that for that vial, you know, and it's wild to see it happening. So so I have a bit of a, you know, tiny little bit of a sore shoulder. I was talking to my little guy yesterday. I said, it doesn't hurt. I said, it's just like your flu shot, kiddo. It didn't hurt, you know, but I it, it was a real I don't even really have a point of what I'm trying to say here, but it was it's like it, it does something to your psyche. It does something to your your headspace when you D- get that shot. D- does it feel like just kind of like a release sort of rushes? Yeah, because like. You know what you're talking about just like staring at the vial of vaccine and I think what would be going through my head is like like this is it this is the solution to this awful situation the whole world has been doing it like this is this is the the crown jewel that we have been working towards all year to get this serum inside your body and yeah. it's just like I totally get it it's just like it seems it seems like such a small thing when it's laid out in front of you. It seems like even just getting the shot like feels like such a small thing to do. But yeah. it's it represents that like we're we can see the finish line of this thing. Yeah, absolutely. It, it just yeah. And then that doesn't mean we're out of the woods and it doesn't mean that there's not serious issues with strained uh, ERs and ICUs in Ontario and, and in other parts of Canada for sure. Um, but you have some great comments here on, on the live chat. I love you guys. I love hanging out with you every morning. You know, Ashley says, I was so happy to get my Pfizer vaccine back in January and February. Teachers and firefighters should have been high up on that list with frontline healthcare workers. I totally agree. Mark says uh, in Salt Lake City, listening in, says that sense of relief when getting a vaccine is a common experience among my friends. Scott says, you remember that Vancouver couple that flew to the Yukon to get their shot? That was a wild story, wasn't it? Greg says, thank you, feds. Chad says, I just said, he says, same as me. Chad says, I stared at that vial too. That teeny tiny little Pfizer vial meant so much. Chad, I know exactly what you mean, my man. All right. We're going to talk federal budget in just a second. I'm really excited for the panel we've got together. We'll get into your comments on, on, on how you feel about the way the federal government intends to, to spend your money over the next year or so. And it's, it's obviously a huge budget. It's a budget. That maybe I'll ask our I'll ask our pundits, but but you, you could maybe suggest it's a budget designed to scare off opposition parties from from considering forcing an election. We'll see if that's the angle that we go down here. I wanted to remind you very quickly how proud we are to partner with the team at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years. They've been Alberta grown and Alberta owned and they're getting set. Well, they're basically ready to rock on heating up the grill. This is everything you need for your perfect Alberta barbecue. You're going to find it at Friesen Brothers. So you can check out the, the, the great favorites in their smoker. I've been telling you about the smoker. When you walk into that store, oh my gosh, Alberta beef, Alberta pork, Alberta chicken. They invite you to talk to their in-store butchers. They're so proud of their real butchers and lots of meat alternative barbecue options available as well. So whoever you're entertaining, 
I guess we're not really talking about that right now, are we? Whoever you're entertaining. But we can be optimistic. We're allowed to be outside. There are ways to entertain. There are ways you to can entertain. You food and bring it to people. That's what, you know, you can hand it over your fence there to the neighbor. Go. Hey, you want to be a great neighbor? Friesen Brothers can help you out. Their 15th Alberta location just off the Henday at Rabbit Hill Road. Also wanted to remind you that Westworld Computers is ready to pump up your workouts and backyard barbecue season with the Sounds of Spring audio promotion. You can save up to 60% off audio products from brands like Beats, Ultimate Ears, JBL, and more. Plus, Westworld carries Sonos, the whole home Wi-Fi audio system. They're now offering Sonos portable speakers, the Move and Roam. You can enjoy music, voice control, and multi-room listening at home on Wi-Fi, plus Bluetooth streaming, all-day battery life, and waterproof durability on the go. Keep the vaccine stories coming. I love it. Uh, you're all testifying on our live chat here, which is which is great. Um, NT says, after the vaccine, I started feeling achy and sluggish, uh, but it made me happy that my body was acknowledging it. Says, isn't that weird? I don't know if it's weird. I can get it. I can relate. I understand. Um, keep the comments coming and we'll get to more of these uh, as the show progresses. Uh, and of course, we want to hear from you. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is also another way, uh, a great way for you to get in touch with us. Let's dig into this federal budget delivered yesterday by uh, Christia Freeland, uh, finance minister. And it's a budget that commits uh, to a whole bunch of promises the liberals have made, including ultimately endeavoring to get to a $10 a day nationally supported child care plan. There's also initiatives to get women more involved in the workplace, black and indigenous people of color, entrepreneurs supported in some marginalized communities, but some big things were were left out, too. As mentioned, Pharmacare, one of them, a universal basic income, another one of them. So let's get to our panel. Um, Very much looking forward to chatting with Jason Hatcher. He's the managing principal of Navigator, Canada's leading high stakes public strategy and communications firm. He leads the Western Canadian operations out of Calgary, specializing in strategic comms, media relations, issues management, and government relations. Uh, also excited to welcome to the program, she is making her debut on Real Talk, which prompts the question, what the hell took us so long to get her on the show? Deirdre Mitchell McLean, everybody knows, a host of the Women of AB Pauly, Women of Alberta Politics Podcast, Political R&D, um, and then we'll be joined by Sam Hart to cast uh, from Enterprise in about a half hour's time. Uh, Jason, Deirdre, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Great thanks for inviting us. Uh, I want to encourage the two of you to, you know, let's let's just treat this like we're out for coffee. We can jump in on each other and, and add to what each other has to say. Jason, do, would, would you agree with me uh, with the assessment that this budget is, is in a way a bit of a brazen dare? The liberals uh, inviting the conservatives or the NDP to try to force an election. Do you see it that way or no? Well, yeah, I do. I think this is absolutely an election budget. Uh, it sets up. There's a whole lot of bees in there, lots of billions and, and a little something for everybody. And I think that's always a sign that there's an election coming. Um, I think for the Conservatives, it puts them in a very difficult position. Uh, it's always hard to uh, oppose motherhood and apple pie, if you will, um, or to sound almost like, uh, you know, a parent of a teenager where you're constantly saying no and, and, and trying to explain why we can't do things. So I think it, it does put the uh, federal Conservatives in an interesting position, uh, but certainly it sets up nicely for the liberal narrative in terms of what they want to talk about going forward, uh, likely heading into the, the next federal election. Deirdre, it's a, obviously the numbers are massive, uh, but again, the context matters. Uh, we're you know in the midst of or emerging from a pandemic, so so it feels like deficits almost 
you know, the regular parameters don't apply. But of course, it's still real money. It's still real debt. How are you wrapping your mind around some of these numbers? Three hundred and fifty four billion. The deficit this year, one hundred and fifty four the year after that, almost 60 billion the year after that. How do you wrap your mind around it? I mean, yes, these are these are fantastic numbers. Um, And but these these are numbers that we really can't wrap our heads around. Yes, we understand these are big numbers. Uh, we also, you know, like I like Jason mentioned, we're coming out of, or we're coming out of a pandemic. What what did we expect, right? And Canada coming out of the pandemic, most of us are in a lot better shape than other countries where they maybe didn't have those type of supports that we were given. So you you look at some of that and and the language the language is uh it's it's really fantastic i thought i thought they did it i thought they did a really great job uh definitely a, a pre-election budget it's it's i thought they did a great job on that what do you what do you mean by that specifically like when when you talk about the language of it give us an example so the budgets i mean most people think of budgets as being uh, they're, they're fiscal documents, right? They're just about numbers. But for the provincial and the federal governments, these aren't just about numbers. These are stories and they're telling stories of what their priorities are. And this particular budget, uh, it was, you know, the narrative talks about uh, unity and inclusion, uh, recovering together, and, and that was kind of what I got from it was we're still fighting this, yes, but, uh, you know, fighting the end of. So it's like it's coming. We are going to get through this. Uh, we're going to get through this together and we're going to be stronger when we are through this. That's that's what I got out of it. Jason, would you agree? Yeah, no, I think language is a really big part of that document. I think there's some really good points just made by Deirdre. I think, you know, uh, first we should acknowledge it's it's way too long coming and, and it's almost embarrassing to have to say this, but it was the first first uh, budget delivered by a female finance minister in this country. And it's crazy to be saying that, but nevertheless, it should be acknowledged. Um, but I think that language piece is, is really in, important. I think they are depending on something that Deirdre just said. Billion is a big number and no one can really imagine the average Canadian, a billion of everything, of anything. I, I can't, certainly, that's for sure. And I think, you know, that spending piece and that language around that, couching it in the togetherness, in a plan forward, in, in sort of a positive recovery is key. And they're depending on Canadians kind of ignoring that that big B and all that 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 sort of space. But there really is something for everybody in here. I mean, if you kind of go down the list, there's a shout out to seniors, you know, the extension of the wage benefit uh, and for small business, I think was really important and, and really, you know, is is centered around the language that that we just talked about. Um, you saw luxury tax that was thrown in there, kind of a little bit of a nod to, to the NDP, if you will. Um, but a real focus on women and youth and, and a look forward. Does it hit the transformational budget that was promised? Uh, I'm not sure about that. But certainly the language is very positive, sets up nicely for for a strong liberal narrative going into the next federal election and really forces the conservatives to to to, to continue to try to define themselves under a new leader, which is always a challenge. Um, and, and I think it's going to be really interesting to watch uh, the liberals push that narrative forward, you know, in the coming days. I believe you have the prime minister on a little later on today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Coming up around 345 Mountain today, um, we'll certainly be asking him about some of the things that were that, that were not included in the budget. 
Jen. I mean, if we're going to talk about Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, obviously, I think that a national pharmacare plan has been huge. And I've seen a lot of people suggest, Deirdre, that maybe that's an indicator that the federal government just simply doesn't believe they could get the provinces on board and they couldn't get the provincial support for that. That's also going to be part of the reality, part of the challenge with this national child care plan, too. I mean, this budget, in a way, do you see this, Deirdre, as, as, as a sort of a... Well, I guess in a way it's a bit of a playbook. It's like an advanced playbook on the federal government maybe changing the way that Canadians perceive how it operates or the relationship with the provinces. You know, um, being that I haven't really spent a lot of time reading federal budgets, I'm not sure if this is excessively different than what other budgets are. So looking at like bringing it even just to the provincial budget, it's you know, it's very similar. They set it up in, in the same way. It's it's telling a story about what their goals are, what their priorities are, what they hope to see in the next, uh, you know, year. And the thing, the thing is that I stopped really believing that the budgets matter. <laughs> and the reason, <laughs> the reason that happened is because in 2019, you know, when Jason Kenney released the budget in October and then he slapped a new date on it and released it again in March of 2020, he didn't change anything. So what do budgets mean? <laughs> well, well, you know, that's, that's a really good point when you look look at the daycare piece, right? I mean, it is the signature piece uh, of this budget. And, and I think a lot of us, you know, those of us who are parents, I remember, uh, you know, my daughter's now a teenager and is actually doing the babysitting. You know, we first started talking about this, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when Paul Martin struck a round table back about 20 years ago when I was just a newlywed. But, you know, this is the signature piece. And to Deirdre's point, you know, where are they going to take this? Because there's a big number and it's the first time we've seen that kind of a number, that kind of a commitment that backs up daycare. We, we've been talking about daycare forever um, uh, or childcare. Um, they want to focus on early childhood uh, hood learning. So this is beyond just uh, babysitting, if you will. This is, is a critical part of, of our education system. So and there's many ways we can do this. You could integrate it right into the education system itself. The federal government wants to do business with, with the provinces. What's interesting is you've got that 30 billion, but what else is there? There haven't yet been any conversations with the provinces. We've already heard that saber rattling from Quebec. They've got their own system, as does Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so you've seen that piece. But a $30 billion plan that has had no negotiation with the provinces yet, and this fiscal or this federal, federal reality that we live in Canada, there's a lot of different points of view. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how that, that really plays out. The, the federal government, sorry, the provinces were looking for, for healthcare credits. They were looking for transfers. They were looking for money, more money in that space. There wasn't a lot there. Um, they're talking about after pandemic, you might see some more dollars. But when you're setting up that negotiation with provinces who are looking in healthcare and they've been offered uh, money at the table for, for childcare, um, but they're also expected to come to the table and, and assume as much as half. We all know that that's how healthcare started two generations ago, and now we're kind of 70-30 with the provinces. It's going to be interesting to see what appetite the provinces have for, for these discussions. We know it's an important priority for Canadians. We know it's an important part of learning. But are they going to allow for some of that flexibility that we've seen provinces like Alberta ask for? Yeah. Dear, do you think that, I mean, because what it does essentially is it puts a bit of an onus on the provinces right now too, in a, in a cost sharing structure that I'm not sure that they'll be willing to stomach. 
Um, can you see that being a priority? I mean, do you perceive that in, in, in your political commentary, what you hear from people talking to your friends? Is this a top priority? Do you think for for, for the enough people that would that would force a provincial government's hand or at least encourage it to participate in these discussions? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is I mean, it's it's been well uh, discussed that this is a she session. Women are disproportionately affected by this pandemic. And one of the reasons is because of uh, a loss of childcare. And so we have seen, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how often we always said this is really, really important. This is something that, that is necessary for women to participate in the workforce and for families to participate in the workforce. It doesn't matter how many times we said that we actually got a front row seat to see what happens when childcare is taken away. So it is absolutely obvious that this has to be a priority for any government. And so I don't think it's really going to take too much to, to force the government's hand, but they just might not like the fact that it's also coming on the heels of the federal government forcing their hands. Yeah. We, we can't go backwards as a society. I mean, we've, we've come so far, uh, not nearly far enough uh, in terms of, of these key issues of equality and equal opportunity. Um, we can't have this, this, this pandemic, you know, reset that it, we need to, to see it as a starting point where we entered it, but the flexibility piece that I'm talking about, and I think, think there is going to be appetite for that if this is done, done properly. But when we talk about flexibility, it's not just on how it's, it's the fiscal, arrangement, but also how it's going to apply and be available to people. Um, there's lots of people in our community that don't work nine to five. They work shift work and they need uh, daycare that works, if you will. So when we talk about universal access, are we talking about a universal access that works for people or a universal access where there might be a space available for nine to five? We also have to look at is if those that are able to pay for it, should they pay some? Maybe it's done through the tax system, a little deduction, while others maybe uh, could benefit from a uh, you know, from from, from full uh, full payment or, or full uh, funding, if you will, of the daycare space. So I think there's some pretty cool issue, pretty cr critical issues here. You know, are we going to create a daycare system that works for all, or or one that we just say we have one? Yeah, because that's I mean, that's it. You're 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 probably going to find consensus among I mean, not all people certainly, but I think many, if not most, people that would support some form of supporting families with childcare costs and, you know, based on sort of political leanings or ideology on how that should play out. It might be keeping more money in parents' pockets or it might be subsidizing a more robust public system, whatever that is. But I mean, we're seeing people right now, you know, comments like for, from Deborah, who's watching now live, says funding childcare is good for everybody. Even if you don't have kids, you know, more money by these families benefiting will be released into the economy and spent at your business and other places. You can certainly make the argument for that. Um, it's not the first time, though, Jason, that this has been promised. It's not the first time that it's been talked about. As a matter of fact, it's been floated many times. Um, do you have reason to believe that this time might be any different and that, that you know, families that, you know, like Tracy who's listening in right now that says the thought that by next year, my $2,500 a month childcare bill would be cut in half is such a relief. I mean, can, can, can she be optimistic that that's going to happen? Well, Tracy, I was optimistic uh, when I had my daughter. She was four, she's 14 now, so I don't mean to be discouraging. Look, I think, I think the fact that we've got, got 30 with a B attached to it is important. To have real dollars attached to initiative is key. Other, you know, until you put those real dollars 
uh, next to an initiative, it, it's just really a promise or a thought or a dream. Um, the, the Minister of Finance, Deputy Prime Minister, definitely has her work cut out for uh, in this in this reality of what, what is Canada, where we have you know different provinces looking at different models for doing it. Uh, I think this is clearly a priority for uh, the federal government, getting the provinces to the table when right now their priorities are are, are somewhat uh, focused elsewhere, especially in provinces like Alberta and Ontario. Ontario, uh, is going to be a challenge. But having said that, I believe that politicians of all stripes do recognize this, this she session. And, and I think recognize as a society how important it is to ensure that we're empowering people to get back to work. Um, but also to ensure that, that those that are on the front lines now um, have the supports that they need. Because one of the things this pandemic has exposed in addition to the she session is it's really exposed the lack of support for shift workers, for people mm. who have uh, you know, two, two family members working or two caregivers working and, and having a system that actually works to ensure that there's equal opportunity for all is going to be key. Um, so I'm optimistic. I, I think that the Liberals have made it clear that this is a priority. So it's going to definitely be a part, part of the agenda going forward. They've made it the signature piece and, and it's been, it was really louder yesterday on that than even the environment. So, I mean, these are good signs for people like Tracy and, and other young parents or, or parents to be. Deirdre, what do you what do you get a sense like vibe wise when when you take a look at a budget that spends like this or that invests like this? The critics, I, I was reading John Iveson's piece in the National Post this morning, and he's uh, I wish I had it in front of me, but he he's somewhat cynical in 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 his own way of writing, talking about you know, hey kids, like you know, here's all the money for you now, and you can just pay me back whenever you can for the next hundred years type idea. Um, it's a big spending budget. It would be described as a campaign type or an election year type budget. Do you believe or do you get the sense that this government would continue or would be able to secure a mandate from Canadians to, to continue with it? Do you get a sense that for the most part, Canadians support this budget? I mean, where are you at on that? Well, I would think that they do because there's a lot of spending for families, right? This is, and it's, and it doesn't seem to me like it's um, uh, entirely frivolous spending, right? You can you can look sometimes and say, geez, is that really a priority for this government? But I didn't really see anything that popped up saying, you know, that's just fluff. Um, it, And again, it might be a big spending budget, but it's also, it's an idealized budget. These are things that they would love to be able to do. These are things that, that, that they would like to have as priorities. But as mentioned, you know, this has been a promise, it's like for childcare, has been a promise for, uh, I believe I saw it 50 years. So we've been waiting a really long time. Yes, it's in the budget, but there's also, uh, I saw, mm-hmm, oh, I don't remember who it was now, but I saw a few a few tweet threads last night and, um, and one there was somebody that was saying, this is not going to happen for at least five more years, this, this childcare plan. So, even if this happens in five years, um, so if you had a baby last year during the pandemic, your child will be in day, in you know school by the time this actually comes through. Um, so again, kind of back to that, budgets are an ideal, and you know if they if they make these these spending uh, promises, if they actually meet them, great. And if they don't, they can turn around and say, you know, we just we just couldn't make this work. Um, so I've got a, I've got a comment here. Um, 
Les is watching. He says, you know, it really pisses me. Les is an act, you know, an advocate for for persons with disabilities. Is it really pisses me off? I know Les. When, when I hear, you know, the budget has something for everyone. Um, from his personal perspective, I'm assuming based on what I'm seeing on his commentary that, you know, he feels that this budget really falls short for persons for Canadians with disabilities, as an example. Um, there are some key points to it. Uh, Jason, certainly, I, I think the $15 federal minimum wage was was an interesting one. I mean, if you think back to where provinces were just even three or four years ago, um, not even close to 15 bucks in a lot of provinces, including Alberta. Right. So there's that. But where do you perceive? I mean, Les says, you know, persons with disabilities, where do you perceive that the budget really falls short or who who did it leave behind or forget about? That's a really interesting question. A great point uh, that you bring forward, Ryan, from Les. Uh, you know, look, I think there are some things missing in, in this budget. I think the narrative coming out is, as Deirdre has said, and, and, and we've talked about here, you know, the narrative the Liberals want to have coming out of this is that there is something from everyone. And, and certainly the day after, that seems to be kind of the general commentary. But funny things happen on the road to Damascus, and Canadians are in a very cynical place right now. Uh, and I think the pandemic is kind of kind of added to that. And I think as we delve, delve down into this, there are going to be things that are missing. Les, Les brings up a very important group when it comes to disabilities. Um, you know, one could argue we've talked about pharma care be, being uh, missing, uh, universal, uh, universal uh, basic income, the health, cre- uh, the health ta- uh, tax credits. These are things that are, that, are, that are genuinely missing from the budget. One could also argue that, you know, in terms of Alberta, there, there were some, some things missing. And we know that Alberta, when it comes to a federal election with the incumbents being liberal, tends to be a flyover province. The leaders don't always stop here. Um, there were some nods for Alberta, but but, you know, in terms of what was missing, you know, certainly on that revenue side, um, you know, the, the lack of a fiscal anchor, uh, any indication that they're going to raise GST, which they've talked about, or, or capital gains on a second, uh, on, on a second uh, home. Uh, these are things that are really important. And when are these, when are these revenue generations going to occur? Are they going to happen after the next federal election? Well, I, I would guess so. And I think Canadians will start looking at this and start wondering, you know, where, how is this going to be funded? Um, you know, what else is missing? And the challenge for a liberal government is, is when you when you try to please everybody, you know, there's a lot of risk in that. And, and, and we know that the road is littered with a lot of political bodies that uh, when they try to do that. So I think that's interesting. You know, for Alberta, there's some shout outs there. Maybe we'll talk about in, in a minute. But there's also some questions, I think, left wanting. Well, well let's talk about Alberta, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get into it. Um, more specifically there. And, and then I want to circle back as well as mentioned, Semhart to Kessel join us in less than 10 minutes and we'll, we'll kind of get back to, to, to her take on that. But Jason, what did you see? I mean, some people are suggesting that the, um, you know, that the prime minister or the, the, the liberals may believe that they could get a few seats back uh, on the prairies, maybe in Alberta, that they may have four or five ridings where they feel like they could make some inroads. Did you see an indication in this budget that there's maybe an olive branch or two uh, that would lead you to believe that the liberals are optimistic about their chances in Alberta or on the prairies next election? Maybe not a full branch, Ryan, but maybe some green shoots, if you will. Um, so I think there's some things that, that, that are in there uh, that are clearly a nod to, to, to Alberta and to, to one of our key industries, obviously, the, industri- the energy industry. Uh, two things that really jump out. First of all is the, the nod to CCUS, or at least CCS from the federal standpoint. Um, you know, I think this is one area where we're seeing uh, a degree of, of commonality or agreement uh, between the 
federal and provincial government, uh, which is is rare, obviously, in this province. Um, but the notion that industry, the federal government, and the provincial government are aligned on getting to net zero for the energy industry um, and are, have all identified CCS or CCUS, carbon capture uh, sequestration, as a, as a part of that path forward, I think is very positive. And you put that on the backs of the announcement a couple of weeks ago, the province is looking at small nuclear reactors. I think these are things that will all contribute to, to the greening or the decarbonization of the space. And we've seen some similar language, again, from the federal government and the provincial government as well. Decarbonization seems to be uh, a piece of commonality. Uh, the idea of getting to net zero per Paris by 2050, again, we're seeing some commonality. We also saw a Canadian version of what we see in the United States of 45Q, a tax credit system for the industry. So you see those green shoots to potentially develop you know, some real clean tech in this province an opportunity to decarbonize uh, the oil and gas industry while we continue to transition. And, and we're going to be reliant on oil and gas into the future. But, uh, but seeing that with zero carbon emissions in the production of it is going to be key. I also think things in ag, there wasn't a lot in ag there, but there was a nod to grain dryers, which may, for those of us who aren't in agriculture, may, may not seem like a lot, but that's a really big thing pertaining to the carbon tax and, and for farmers, right? So uh, there are some, some nods there. And the devil's in the details, uh, you know, concerning for the for the province, I think, would be would be reluctance on the feds to support enhanced oil recovery. So if we're going to capture this carbon, can't we reuse it, reuse, recycle? I think that used to be back when I was growing up. That's the way we talked about things. Um, and, you know, can we get uh, to a point where, yes, we may perhaps we're we have enhanced oil recovery, but if that oil is, is you know, governed the way it is in Canada with consultation with First Nations, if it's, uh, if, if it's environmentally uh, responsible and it's, we were able to, to, to get it through net zero, um, and it's done in a society where we promote equality, that sets up for the last barrel of oil whenever that comes to be a Canadian barrel of oil, and, and that would be a good thing. If we can build on that, I think it's important. But all of these things are very expensive. And, and I think the, the lack of, of real dollars attached to CCUS and CCS uh, is, is concerning uh, because they're going to be real dollars. And in a budget that already has big dollars, uh, to have something left out like that uh, is, is something that needs to be watched. Deirdre, what's your assessment? In, 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 you, know, you have your finger on the pulse with regards to the podcast that you host of, of how Albertans may feel about this federal government. Do you, I, I had a conversation, I guess it was, what was it, Sam, about a month ago maybe when we talked to Minister Seamus O'Regan talking about his conversations with Alberta's Energy Minister Sonia Savage. And, and actually what struck me about that interview was Minister O'Regan describing the relationship as very amicable and very cooperative and very collaborative, which I think surprised a lot of people, including me um, as we were taking that interview in what's the sense you get about uh, Alberta's uh, or the prairies if you want uh, open-mindedness to, to these types of investments and do you think that the federal government can achieve some goodwill and ultimately gain some political ground with a budget like what Jason was describing uh, you're asking so many questions there um, it's, so it's, I always ask about <laughs> nine questions per question that's kind of how I host <laughs> so so is there so let's start with is there space for uh this federal government to gain seats to to gain support they have been gaining support um that's more to do with um what's perceived as a failure of our provincial government than necessarily something that that the federal government has done fantastically well but what was the the poll that came out from uh enveronics oh is this the one you're saying where trudeau's polling better than kenny in alberta 
Well, that that more Al- they're sorry that that Albertans have more faith in the federal government to get us through the pandemic, and they have the least amount of faith in the provincial government mm. to get us through the pandemic. So this was a you know who uh, and we also had a uh, large the largest number of people who said they trust neither government to get us through the pandemic. That was unique to Alberta, Um, (laughs) which is not surprising because I also spend time around Wexiteers. Um, Are they still calling themselves that? Uh, But anyway, so they, so Mavericks now. Yeah. The Mavericks. Mavericks. Yeah, that's right. Mavericks. (laughs) Oh yes. Um, So there is, so there's a lot of people too, that will absolutely never accept that this federal government and, and I am very specifically this one because it is led by a man whose name is Trudeau and that, you know, just made all kinds of problems. But the thing is that this was a pandemic the United Conservative Party was not elected to deal with a pandemic or, um, you know, closing down childcare centers, uh, schools. That's not, they were elected to bring back oil and gas jobs, restart the economy and bring back the next oil boom. So um, it just, it's, it's a product of its environment right now. Jason, do you, uh, do you believe like when you take a look at a budget like this and it's a big spending one and the, and the government would probably use different words than spend. They would use words like invest. But yes. but but, you know, we evaluate it in the context of a pandemic. So, we, we you know, we, we stare down a three hundred and fifty five billion dollar deficit in one fiscal year and try to wrap our minds around that. And it's, you know, I said earlier, that's not the budget. That's the deficit. I mean, a budget of three hundred fifty four billion sounds a little bit more right about that. But at some point, Canadians are going to say it's not you can't get away with running pandemic deficits anymore. Right. When, when do they when do they run out of runway there? The federal government. Well, I think that's a really good point, Ryan. And, and there's a couple of things that come to mind when you when you talk about. First of all, we've talked about the bees. We've talked about all the billions. There's a T. And that's the debt, and that's the trillion piece. Again, if we can't understand bees, how are we going to understand T's? Well, one way we can is is to look at childcare, for example. Um, that signature piece is, is $30 billion committed, yet I think we're roughly $40 billion now in servicing that debt. So that's more than we're going to invest in childcare in itself. And, and I think that speaks volumes. You know, I, I think that for Canadians, uh, like I said, first blush the morning after we look at it and go, there's, there's something for a lot of people in here. But then we start, as, le- as we heard from Les earlier, looking at who's left out. And we start looking at the spending. And, and I think that when you look at $100 billion in new spending, at the same time when economists are saying, we may come out of this with a pretty hot economy to start. Uh, one of the, the dangers for the federal government is to start to superheating the economy right when they want to go to the polls, likely next fall. Um, and if they overheat that economy, we start to see inflation coming in and prices start going up just when people are, are sort of shedding the, the shackles of, of the pandemic. I think that will be challenging uh, for the federal government. So it's something they're going to have to watch in terms of, of that spending piece, because if the narrative shifts away from the great words that Deirdre were ta- was talking about, investing in people, you know, being about uh, the youth and, and the future, making sure that we solve the, the, the she session, if you will, uh, then that'll work well for, for, for the liberals. But if, if, if the eye starts moving and the gaze starts moving over towards the long-term implications of this, implications of this, as parents start to thinking about debt loads, baby boomers are, are getting into the retirement years, Gen X are going to be starting thinking about that. You know, that's where things get complicated. Now, a lot of this is going to be set by where the opposition parties go federally and 
some provincial premiers. Because I can tell you Justin Trudeau would likely rather run an election against Jason Kenney and Doug Ford than he would Aaron O'Toole. Like we said earlier, Aaron O'Toole is yet to be defined. He's, he's in the process of defining himself and has taken some major steps in that uh, in the last month or so. Um, but from a Trudeau standpoint, from the prime minister's standpoint, you know, he'd probably rather focus on, 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 uh, on Jason Kenney and, and Doug Ford, if you will. Um, so for those leaders, how do they oppose this budget? Right. Like I said at the earlier, you don't want to sound like the parent always saying no and you can't have this and here's why, because people won't always listen to the why. But if they can start talking about a different way to achieve the same goals, if they're able to to really wrap themselves around some of the same values and goals uh, and acknowledge some of the problems that the liberals are, are, are attempting to sort of tick all the boxes that they're solving different problems, um, then you may have a different discussion. And that's the challenge for the federal liberals right now. There was two windows really before wave three of the pandemic came in for a federal election that I saw. One was in the spring. I think there was a lot of folks that wanted to do that in Ottawa and then is in the fall. So for the federal government, there's a long time for this this uh, budget to be defined. There's a long for time for it to be fully baked in the public consciousness. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, those federal liberals take the different pieces of this and emphasize them across the country. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, there might be seats available in, in certain places in this province. I don't think there's a lot of seats available uh, for the Liberals here. Uh, this election is going to be fought in, in Toronto yeah. and, and in Quebec. 100 percent. And maybe maybe in lower mainland, maybe lower mainland Vancouver. Sure. I don't Absolutely. know. But but yeah, I, I I agree with you. And I think it'll be interesting to say, I mean, there's so much speculation around who the liberals may run in Alberta. I mean, everybody's talking about I have no insight in this. I'm not saying that I do, but everybody's talking about, you know, maybe Calgary and Edmonton's mayors uh, potentially in head Nenshi Don Iveson would consider running. Some people are talking about Mark Carney, maybe running for a seat in Alberta for the liberals. I know that Amarjeet Sohi, uh, everybody's wondering, you know, waiting to see whether or not he's going to declare his candidacy to run as mayor of Edmonton or or whether it may. uh, And again, I don't have any insight here. It's not for me to say, but but uh, a lot of people speculate around that. So we'll have to see. But I do agree uh, 100 percent with you, Jay. I don't think that there's 10 seats up for grabs for the liberals in Alberta. Um, We're going to hit pause for just we can all agree on that. Uh, Sam Hart to Kessel be joining us here in just a quick second. I love this comment from Michael. Uh, There's still conversations going on in our live chat. He says to have an affordable child care system would have been life changing infrastructure for us as a family years ago. Here's hoping that for my kids and future grandkids to have that opportunity. We'll circle back on that. We'll focus on that in just a second as we welcome in Sem Hart to Kest. Right now, wanted to remind you that we're able to do this show each and every day because we have the support of partners like Clean Air Club. They want you, and we tell you this every single day because it's a nice and simple message, but such an important one. Save money, breathe easy. That's what they're all about. And so you know how it goes by now. You check out the style or the, the size, rather, of furnace filter that you need. You let them know at cleanairclub.ca. You punch it in. Oftentimes, it's the next day. You've got your replacement filters on your front door along with a little gift. And, of course, you're going to pay less than you would in stores anyway. So your family saves money and everybody breathes easy. We know that oftentimes on the to-do list, changing the furnace filter keeps getting bumped into the future. They want to change that at Clean Air Club. The team at Park Power is powering our Real Talk RJ hashtag. Really appreciate those of you that are chiming in. 
Gotta say there's a lot of excitement around our interview this morning, uh, or rather our interview this afternoon coming up with the Prime Minister. That's 345 Mountain Time, 545 Eastern. And at Real Talk RJ, on that hashtag, a lot of suggested questions. Keep them coming. We'll get to as many as we can in the 15 minutes we have with the PM. Park Power has a promo code for you to consider. Write it down, 2021-RealTalk. If you go to parkpower.ca right now and sign up for internet, electricity, natural gas, commercial, residential, that promo code 2021-RealTalk will get you 70 bucks off your first bill at Park Power. Also, a big shout out to the team at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. I was just talking to Michael and Mark, the owners of those stores, just the other day, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate their support. They love your support. So many of you real talkers going through the drive throughs or even leaving comments on your delivery app, letting them know that you're supporting them because they support this show. We sure appreciate it. Uh, don't forget, Dairy Queen has the dairy-free Dilly Bars. Check those out at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Jason Hatcher's hanging out with us from Navigator Deirdre Mitchell McLean of the wildly popular Women of Alberta Poly podcast. And what a pleasure as well to welcome back a really great friend of this show. She's a senior public affairs consultant with Enterprise. She's got a ton of experience provincially and federally in politics, including her work in the conservative war room during the 2015 federal election. She led stakeholder outreach strategy for Andrew year then the leader of the official opposition sem hartikest welcome back to the show it's good to see you i think we have you muted my friend so we'll just get you off mute real quick and uh sam's working on it or we'll make sure that we can hear Semhar. uh good to go let's try again can you hear me now or can we hear you let's try it out I can hear you. There can you, you are. Perfect. We've got you, my friend. Um, hey, I was I was pumping your tires earlier saying that you basically have like a morning and an afternoon just just chock full of meetings and you've given us 20 minutes of your time. We're really grateful for it. So let, let's just jump right into the pool. Um, before that break, Jason and Deirdre and I were talking about, you know, how much runway you think the federal liberals have with a with a with a big spending budget like this. How much how much leash will Canadians give them in the context? Text of it being all about a post-pandemic recovery. What sort of a sense do you get from, from what you saw and what was announced or rolled out yesterday? Well, look, I think that um, it was a fairly shrewd budget by the Liberals. I think it, it hit all of their sort of natural voting coalitions or their targets um, quite well. The, the runway they have is, you know, until the election. I think the election, so the budget itself won't matter so much during the election. The election is going to be a referendum on their performance at mitigating the impact of the pandemic. And for the most part, they're they're doing okay. Um, and I think by the time they're, the next elect, the election comes around, they will be able to say, we are the guys that got vaccines into your arms, you know, albeit quite late, but voters' memories are short. So by the time if everybody or most people are vaccinated by the time they have to go to the ballot box, um, that's all that will matter. And that gives them a really good chance uh, of getting reelected. Now on their budget, it, it'll be, they'll have, they'll have just as much runway as they like, frankly, because they're going to, they're assuming, assuming they, uh, they deliver on their promise to get everyone vaccinated by September. Um, they have a good chance of winning the next election and, uh, and probably at, at gaining more seats than they have now. So they'll have plenty of runway to, to launch this, uh, 
the measures in this budget. If you were if you were sort of drafting up the messaging or what the general theme of that next election would be. Um, and Jason, I'm curious to hear from you on this as well, because you touched on where you thought there were a couple of windows that, that maybe closed when an election could have been run. Um, Samhar, what would what would you focus on if you're liberals? If you do get everybody vaccinated by September, and I think that there were some 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 hints or, or some clues or maybe some direct indicators that they do believe that that's I mean, the, the, the length of time where they extended the, you know, the, the wage supports, the rent supports, the, the emergency supports, they all come up right around that that fall mark, right around that September mark which is i think a good indicator is that the message you would take to the canadian people we, we did what we had to do we put our money where our mouth is we, we we supported you as best uh you know we were able to uh, uh you know really not having um precedent set with this before is is that the general message of what the liberals you think would take to canadians yeah i think it'd be i think the, the supports that they've provided to business for sure would be sort of part of the message the we got, you know, X number of vaccines to make sure that all Canadians could be vaccinated um, is another one. But it's these other guys will cut, um, will cut sort of spending. And if you reelect us, we will implement, um, uh, you know, a ten dollar a day child care program. And uh, we will make sure that we help reboot the economy without cutting spending and all of all of that sorts sort of, you know, liberal rhetoric. Um, which I think, you know, given the situation that Canadians are in, I think there is an opportunity for them to, or a chance that they will continue to extend things like the rent subsidy and uh, the wage subsidy to allow businesses to, to sort of reboot or recover, if you will, to allow people to find jobs and to allow for that period of time. Um, if I'm, you know, and I probably, I will never find myself in this situation, but if I'm, if I'm writing a strategy for the liberals, that's, that's what I would focus on is telling people that the Fed, the liberals have been there for them through the pandemic and that they'll extend the supports that they provided to them before to help them recover post pandemic. Yeah, and I then think those, the contrast obviously with, with the other guys. I, I think that's that's those are really key points. I mean, I think, you know, Deirdre talked about this earlier about language. It's going to be about togetherness and it's going to be about recovering together. Let's finish what we started. And they have several narratives lining up, at, as Samira said, like they're, they're, it's they've set this up well leading into the budget and, and they have a nice narrative coming out. Um, and, and in that sense, they can talk about the unfinished work on the environment, uh, the unfinished work on 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 preparing, uh, recovering from this pandemic and preparing for the next one. And then the whole economic recovery piece. You know, I, I can really see a, a, a Canadiana type uh, messaging, much like we saw, you know, right coming right out of the swearing in in 2015 uh, for the federal liberals and going forward. And, and I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about opposition reaction and the conservatives being put in that doctor no position. But there's another challenge there, and that's the NDP. Uh, and the NDP, how do they say they're not liberal right now? How in the world do they they really differentiate themselves uh, from the liberals? In fact, it, it might even help the Greens in that situation. They've had a lower profile since uh, since they changed leaders, but uh, you know it is an important issue the environment, and you and, and they may get some traction if other voters who who normally would support the NDP or park a vote with an NDP just don't see see really a difference there. I think that's going to be a real challenge for 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 that party. That's also a, part, a challenge for the conservatives. Uh, it's very, and I think others would agree on this. It's a tough, tough road back 
to 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 power for the conservatives without a strong third party that kind of nips at the uh, at some of the indie uh, sorry the liberal votes and, and you get that vote splitting um you know I, I don't see a 1984 happening again for the conservatives uh, just quite yet yeah deirdre i'm i'm curious for your let's talk about the the official opposition uh aaron o'toole who's had a, a, a decent amount of time now i think to to start to put his stamp anyway on on what uh the party looks like under his leadership how would you assess uh, the job that he's done thus far in portraying uh, the Conservative Party is a little bit different than it was under Andrew Scheer or in uh, potentially presenting it as a more compelling option, um, maybe starting with that climate plan that I, I think was, quite frankly, relatively speaking, pretty gutsy last week. Deirdre, how yeah. would you assess the job that he's done thus far? You know, it it goes back and forth. Uh, we were just talking about this the other day and how it seems like there's he's playing both sides of the coin. So he's, you know, he's going to put in an environmental plan, which is necessary if they want to form government, there's not an option there. Um, but, you know, he's, he's also, so he's, is he turning his back on, on the, uh, the Mavericks that are really against some of these things, it's attacks. Uh, it, you know, he's O'Toole is coming out, you know, he's definitely different than Andrew Shear, but I'm seeing a lot more of the language that Harper used and not Harper in 2015, but Harper in 2011. So it's, it's, uh, what is it? Strong and secure. So secure, secure, secure just keeps coming out of Aaron O'Toole's mouth. And that reminds me of the tough on crime, Stephen Harper in 2011. So I think he's going back to that a bit Um, now. But that speaks to that's language that speaks to people who vote conservative. Right. Security is is something that 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 triggers that. Yes, I'm voting conservative Uh, safety triggers yes i'm voting conservative and so again like i mean their their response was was short simple um the the email that they first sent out uh but it's you know and it's also very personalized so it's about your personal finances it's about your children's post-secondary education savings it's about you and it's it's a and it's about you know, your economic future. Uh, your Mark, I, I spoke with Melissa Cowett yesterday from Canadian Strategy Group around the idea of of building a stronger momentum in, you know, the GTA or the lower mainland and the areas where I think, you know, pollsters determined after October of 2019 that that had the conservatives been perceived to have a stronger climate plan, they maybe could have won a few seats and, and ultimately could have potentially formed government. Um, this O'Toole climate plan or the conservative climate plan under O'Toole, which which comes up with some interesting ideas on on credits and and how it might work. Um, I know he's insisting Mr. O'Toole is that it's a levy, not a tax because the government doesn't collect it. But but I think generally speaking, people perceive it to be what it is, which is money coming out of their pocket and then being put back in. Do you think that it's an intuitive uh, risk? Uh, do you think it's one that could pay off or do you think it's one that could burn Aaron O'Toole? My 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 sense is that you can surrender five points on the prairies to gain five points in Toronto. Am I oversimplifying this? Well, I think I'd start with sort of 
what the metrics are for Erin O'Toole, right? So for this plan, the metric isn't whether it's a good plan or a bad plan. The, me the measure is whether it's a credible plan. And that allows Erin O'Toole and Erin O'Toole's conservatives to start getting into sort of the psyche or having conversations with voters in and around the GTA, which is where they need to gain votes. There's an understanding by the conservative voter base that we have to come up with, um, or the membership, I should say, there has to be a credible climate plan to be a credible federal or political party in this country. Does that sacrifice votes sort of in the prairies and, and in Alberta to, to, to sort of save votes in uh, or gain votes in and around the GTA? I think it does. And I think, I think it's a risk that the caucus and the party has sort of it's a it's a calculated risk that they're taking and there's an understanding that we have to come up with solutions to climate change that don't handicap our oil and, our oil and gas sector and our other resources in the prairies but that it has to be credible and and they're at they're at step one now where it's you know do we have a credible plan they do i think by all sort of um reporting and measures it's 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 been uh, it's been sort of accepted as a credible plan so from that aspect i think he's he's attained that objective the question now becomes selling this plan in the gta and uh you know the prairies in alberta and making sure you're successful there yeah, that, that calculated risk part, I, th I think that's a great way to describe it. And look, he's not the first leader to have made a calculated risk. But the calculated risk is simply put, that is, is that, uh, you know, there are more accessible potential voters for the Conservative Party than there were uh, voting delegates, perhaps at at, at the at the at the at the, uh, at the convention that we saw recently. Um, and so we've seen that calculated risk. I think Smear's right. The the, the, the they have great credibility right out of the gates. I mean, that is one thing that was surprising. Certainly the carbon, having some sort of a carbon tax was important, but they came out of the gates and, and they're not going to be easily dismissed on this. Now the challenge for, for Mr. O'Toole and the party is they have proposed a different way of doing things in terms of how the carbon tax, where it will go. Um, you know, you know, I think a lot of us uh, don't like the idea of carbon taxes going into general revenues that the governments can then spend on whatever. It should be focused on what it's designed to do. That's what taxation should do. If we're going to focus it on carbon, then it should have an impact on carbon. Um, but it's complicated and it doesn't roll off the tongue real well. It's not a great soundbite. So how they define that is going to be a challenge for them. They also have to, to demonstrate to Canadians, particularly those Canadians in the GTA, that 905, the magical 905 that we, we all know is important, those 77 rounds in Ontario, Quebec, and the Lower Mainland that decide every federal election. Um, and I know at Navigator, we watch it all the time from our, from our polling. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But how is, is Aaron O'Toole going to be able to convince Canadians, convince those Canadians in those 77 ridings that they weren't dragged to the table kicking and streaming? Can they look back and show that Conservatives, you know, we saw Brian Mulroney win awards for his environmentalism. We saw Preston Manning talk about conserve being in our name. Um, we saw strong, uh, strong ministers like Jim Prentice and John Baird under, under, under Prime Minister Harper. Um, can he tell that story that this is a party that's always been there for environment or are we going, or is, are 
the Liberals going to be able to cast them as as a group that have come to the table kind of late late in the game? Yeah, I've got this. I've got a great email here, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, with apologies to Aaron who wrote it into talk at ryanjesperson.com. I don't want to take all of our time to read the entire thing. But Aaron Wright wrote in to say with regards to the Conservatives' new climate plan. Your interview with Melissa Cowett, um, who he says was very well spoken, well balanced. Um, he said it, it still left me asking this question. How embarrassing is it for a major political party that a feeble first draft of a climate plan that ultimately misses the mark in 2021 is considered a positive step forward? Uh, which was kind of a scathing indictment, <laughs> maybe not even kind of. Uh, but I thought and that was kind of the theme of, of Aaron's thing. It reminds me of was it Mad TV? I think it was Mad TV back in the day that skit lowered expectations. It was like the dating service of people that had lowered expectations. Dear, do, do you think that the conservatives can accomplish what Jason was talking about and, and convince Canadians that it's a credible plan? Or do you think they're vulnerable for pot shots? Uh, from their political opponents, probably most namely the liberals, uh, that could score easy points on the reputation that the conservatives have earned in that regard, or at least see in some parts of Canada. Yeah, I mean, that's they're they're fighting. They're fighting everything that they've been saying for the last you know, five years, 10 years on on a credible environmental plan. They're fighting uh, Harper reducing environmental protections uh they are they're fighting decisions that they've made they're fighting arguments that they have given and that is going to be a little bit tough but at the same time um you know is it possible absolutely because what you know what sunk andrew Shear was that they gained votes in alberta and saskatchewan well <laughs> but they already had the seeds like they they can't they cannot um they can't just look to gain votes on the prairies. They actually need seats. And in order to get seats, they need to come up with plans that more Canadians are interested in. And the thing is in Alberta in, well, okay. I don't know about Saskatchewan, but in Alberta for sure, there are a lot of people on some of this long-term polling that they've done have said, you know, do you think that we should be looking at more credible plans on the environment within the next 10 years. More people said yes, and granted, yes, we push it down the line, but people are thinking about it. They're aware of it. So it's not even like it's anti-prairie conversations here. Sam Hart, do you, how much of this, we were talking about the, you know, the, what do you want to say? I mean, there's there's so much work that's put into over the years. It's fascinating to watch, obviously, conservative politics in Canada and how, you know, you'll see sort of the the, the spinoff parties, whether it's the Reform Party, Canadian Alliance, whether provincial, federal, there, there are examples all over the place. The Maverick Party now uh, led by Jay Hill. How much of I mean, are they sweating that in Aaron O'Toole's office? Is, is that a legitimate threat, do you think, to, to some of the conservative stronghold ridings or even stronghold provinces or no? Um. I'll just go back to for a second on the on the climate plan question. And I just want to say that every leader is expected to build a party in their name or in their image. So I think the fact that Aaron O'Toole right out the gate in his under, I think the first few months as leader has presented a credible climate change plan allows him a little bit of latitude in that respect. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll put that aside. Now on the sort of, um, on this sort of question of the conservative party being hurt by other conservative or right-leaning parties uh, uh, developing. Look, I think that, um, that history is a teacher and that 
parties, including the Conservative Party, should always be weary of um, making sure they can contain as many or get as many conservative votes or as much conservative support as, as possible. I think that Erin O'Toole's office is not discounting any of sort of the Maverick Party or even the PPC, the, the uh, I can't think of the, yeah, the, the full pe- name right the now. People's Party of Canada, right, which to me sounds like such a, doesn't it sound like such a communist party, but I digress. It sounds yeah. like a bunch of commies. That's what it sounds like. But anyway. Yeah. So they're, they're, look, they're, they're paying close attention to um, the activities and the support for, for those parties, um, but they're not losing sleep over them necessarily. They're just, it's sort of a, it's a knowledge that it's a factor, but they're really focused on ensuring that their new policies or their policies ahead of the next election appeal to and are communicated to conservatives from the entire tent. Uh, I want to give each of you a chance to to sort of offer a closing remark, but I'm also really curious to know when we talk about, you know, the uh, a strong left leaning party, like if we say, for example, the NDP being key to conservatives chances in an election to to chip away at the votes that the liberals might see. Um, Jason, do you perceive how do you perceive the state of I mean, the federal NDP? There's been a lot of talk about money and finances and some problems there. But with regards to sort of the, the compelling leadership do you believe that they're gaining inroads? And and even with I mean, I even think Annamie Paul, uh, the leader of the Green Party of Canada, a lot of people are pretty optimistic, pretty excited about what she could bring to the table, optimistic that she could really create some momentum there for that party. How, how would you evaluate the state of the, you know, the, the left center left left and, and, and those two parties in particular that I've named? Well, like I said, I think the, the, the big challenge for them is, is how they define themselves as not being liberal. This budget and where this prime minister has positioned his party um, is is a little more to the left, one could say, or at least occupying the space that the NDP and, and the Green Party would like to occupy on, your own, on their own. Uh, I think it's going to be a real challenge for those those parties to cut through the clutter. I, I think, as others have already said, um, you know, this is really going setting up the next election as a showdown in Motown between the federal uh, federal liberals and the federal conservatives. Um, I, I think Jagmeet Singh is, is seen as someone who uh, in the last election was new and was well liked and, and, and tried some different things. I, I could argue that from a communication standpoint, they really did well the first couple of weeks of the, of the last federal election, really kind of punched above their weight in terms of where they, they sat in the news cycle. Um, I think they're going to be challenged both both from the side of the Liberals and and from the Greens. I think people are intrigued uh, by the new leadership at, at the Green Party. I think that that appetite to get to know the Green Party and, and, and Ms. Paul is going to be, be is going to re- be reflected in coverage. So how does the NDP stand out and from from both the Liberals and the Greens? Um, how do they move? And, and I think what the Liberals are hoping here is ultimately that will kind of split votes and they'll just kind of go everywhere, but 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 won't really amount to much. Um, but when you get those kind of uh, two horse races, often people will say a pox on both your houses. We don't like either one. And then that's the opportunity potentially for the Greens and the NDP to to gain a little more attention. But I think the Greens with a new leader, there's something for them to work on there for sure. Uh, and I also think the NDP are struggling right now a little bit from uh 
different voices from within. I think the, the vision for the NDP in the West and that those prairie pragmatists are very different from from sort of the, the 905 version of the NDP. I mean, even the, even the recent yeah. conver- conversation on Israel and Palestine, it was kind of like, oh, boy, you kind of wonder where this is going to go with regards to the, the, the reputation of the party and how people receive or where people perceive the party's priorities. Uh, Deirdre and Semhar, I want to give you a, a chance to offer one last thing or one last word to tie this up neatly with a bow. And so we can all acknowledge we have covered this budget in robust fashion, leaving no questions remaining. Uh, Deirdre, what's what's one thing that we should walk with in considering the impact of this budget or the message it sends? Um, I think the message that this budget is sending, and I mean, they actually spelled it out. They said, we care about Canadians. We are putting people first. That was it. You know, no, but, ta- or, you know, but the debt, but, but all of these other things. No, it was just where we're lively or sorry, lives first. Yeah. So that, that was, I think a, an important distinction. With regards to priorities and, and strong messaging. Semhar, last, last word to you. What's, what's something, can, can I throw you a curveball? What's something we haven't covered here? that you thought was really significant that demands or deserves more attention from Canadians? Well, I'll just say this. I wasn't here for the first part of the conversation, but this isn't a, this is a platform. It's not a budget necessarily. This is an election platform. The liberals have launched their campaign for the next election. And that's what I think people should focus on as well. Well said. That's Sam Hart to Kest uh, from Enterprise, Jason Hatcher from Navigator, Deirdre Mitchell McLean. Check out her women of Alberta poly podcast. Thanks to the three of you. This has been really great. Thanks, thanks very much. much. Thanks Great to so see much. you all. Yeah, you bet. Um, our thanks to them. Let me let me let me get into the rest of Aaron's email because I wanted to read this. That was really good. Uh, talking about the climate plan, and he said, you know, how is it that a for a major political party, a feeble first draft of a climate plan that misses the mark is considered a positive step forward? That's obviously a, a scathing indictment of the plan. I think if you talk to Aaron O'Toole, he'd probably tell you that he believes he's stuck his neck out a little bit. Um, and risked some support to, to try to gain some support. We talked about that yesterday with Melissa Cowett. Aaron goes on to say, how embarrassing is it that the conservatives have to carefully navigate the internal politics of recognizing the largest threat to and challenge for modern human civilization so they don't alienate too much of their voting base? Aaron says there are many subjective issues where diversity of opinion is expected and important, where there are multiple approaches which lead to you know, minorly different outcomes. These are issues where we can afford to have the traditional party lines and rhetoric, but climate change is not one of them. It says there's very little room for differing opinions on how severe the issue is. And any party that barely pieces together policy to address this, let alone seems to completely misunderstand the issue, should not be congratulated. COVID's another such issue, and we're seeing firsthand the struggle and unnecessary suffering that can happen when politicians cannot put parties aside and listen to experts. The climate has the potential for far more devastating consequences. Goes on to say, in my opinion, over the years, they've put themselves in this position. Conservatives have by fanning the anti-East flames and poisoning the tax water to grab and keep as much power as possible. It's all been incredibly short-sighted. Trudeau and the liberals gave the conservatives every opportunity to form government last election. I agree. Says it was almost as if it was being handed to them, but their inability to adapt to the changing political climate, pun intended, has exposed them to be at the end of their potential, unable to move forward without dismantling the very platform they stand on. 
Aaron Raps by saying, ultimately, this is a major loss for Canada and for our fight against climate change. We need all hands on deck, all people together pushing forward to negate as much of the already worsening effects as possible. Yes, rugged individualism and personal freedoms are very important, but they've gone unchecked for too long. And now we have to work together, which means larger government regulations, more taxes. People's heads are going to explode hearing this. The quick but measured dismantling of offending industries who just happen to be incredibly wealthy and the development of and transition to new and sustainable ones. We cannot give a single government or party that responsibility. It's too much and it's too dangerous. We need conservatives and their voters to see the massive economic potential of this and lead from the front. They can't do that with their heads in the sands. Aaron says, sorry, Jespo, this became more of a rant than I was planning. But being a progressive in Alberta means bottling up a lot of frustration. Thank you for reading this. That from Aaron. Well, thank you for taking the time. We get the best emails. And honestly, you know this. If you've taken the time to write us, we do our best. I try to leave time for in every show to read three or four or five emails. We try our best because they're amazing and I don't want to leave them on the table, but we have folders and full, I mean, just pages and pages of amazing emails that you've sent us engaged citizens, this audience, there's something special about it. I'm crushing on you guys again. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send your emails to us. And, and oftentimes what's amazing here is, of course, because you can subscribe to our podcast, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. A lot of times people will people will write us notes about shows that were in, in some circumstances weeks ago. Um, it's one that they've just had a chance to hear or they've, they, they, they took it in and then they thought about it for a while and they had this, you know, th- these thoughts kind of percolating and then they finally put them down and we just so greatly appreciate it. It is April 20th. Uh, that's 420, if you will, on the cannabis calendar. And uh, we're going to be getting to a great roundtable, our puff puff panel in just a second. But I wanted to give a big shout out first to the team at Eden Landscaping. This is the time of year where they really get to show off what they can do. Uh, One of the big things, one of the big draws, I think, for people that have partnered with Eden Landscaping for more than two decades now is the fact that they design and then implement your plan. You don't have to hire a landscape architect and then hire a general contractor and then go through all of that and the crossed wires and the mix-ups and the headaches. Forget about it. This is a one-stop shop, whether it's a, a beautiful backyard installation, maybe an outdoor kitchen, a swim spa, how about like a multi-tiered, uh, beautiful kind of retaining wall setup with different planting beds. Uh, the sky's the limit. I thought of a new when one. When it one comes to your imagination, you thought of a new one? Oh, how great would an outdoor kitchen with a wood-fired pizza oven be? Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, heck oh, yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, outdoor pizza oven is like... I've got a buddy with one, and he told me it's one of the best investments he's ever made. This is exactly the type of thing that the team at Eden Landscaping loves to get into, um, dreaming up ideas and then turning them into reality. Check out the work they do. It speaks for itself at landscapeedmonton.ca. You know by now how much we appreciate the support of the team at Kubi Energy. Of course, every Monday, they present positive reflections. We've already got submissions for next Monday coming in uh, to our email inbox, talk at ryanjesperson.com. Basically, we start our week off on the right foot. Kubi is, is all about that positivity. And of course, they're also all about that energy transition, like the one that Aaron was just talking about. Sustainable initiatives, going green. They've found ways for their 
partners, their clients, their customers to go green on small projects like like maybe the cabin, the family cabin, all the way up to big industrial installations. They're headquartered out of Edmonton with an office in Kamloops. So Western Canada is their bag, baby. And they can make it happen with their Tesla certified installers. Plus, they do all the paperwork at Kubi Energy. Check them out online at kubienergy.ca. A shout out to the team at Alta Moving and Storage. It's the time of year where the spring cleaning is underway for so many folks. And of course, a big part of that is going to be getting rid of clutter. Alta Moving and Storage has these pod style moving containers. If you're looking to get something out of there, but you want to do it at your own pace and take the stress out of it, or if you're looking for a long or short term storage solution, look no further than Alta Moving and Storage at altastorage.ca. Make sure you let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. Well, a happy 420 to the cannabis enthusiasts in our listening audience. I'm really excited about this Puff Puff panel that we've put together. We're going to talk about stigma. We're going to talk about how the industry has changed since cannabis has gone legal in Canada. I want to talk about what 420 means anymore. Has it has it lost its oomph, so to speak, from back when it was a day that represented protest, a day that represented big statements about how Canadians felt about their relationship with cannabis? It's a real pleasure to the welcome uh, to welcome to the program. Uh, Nathan uh, Misson. Nathan is the CEO of Diplomat Consulting. He's also the chair of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's National Cannabis Working Group, and he's the past chair of the Alberta Cannabis Council, the first employee in Alberta for Fire and Flower Cannabis, serving as their VP of Government and Media Relations for about three years. We're also very excited to welcome to the program. Uh, we're going to get into to this, what Lisa Campbell's all about, the founder and CEO of Mercari Agency that they help. Hi, Lisa. They help cannabis companies come to market across Canada. So she's all about brand development, market access. That's where she's an expert. Uh, Since the dawn of recreational legalization, they've been doing it. Um, Lisa actually became an expert in cannabis by working extensively in international drug policy with Canadian students for sensible drug policy. And rounding out our Puff Puff panel for now is my bro this is jonas jesperson jonas is joining us from joy botanicals uh it's a craft cannabis it's a boutique cannabis uh lp a licensed producer just outside of calgary full disclosure not only is jonas my brother but i also have an invested interest in the company but it's my podcast so we can do whatever the hell we want jonas people may say jesperson's serving his own interests here and i would say well you may very well be right happy 420 everybody and thanks for joining us here on the show I think, yeah, Lisa, we'll go with you first. And I think we may have a couple guests on uh, mute, Sam, but I know we can sort that out. Lisa. Happy 420. Yeah, happy 420, brother. It's good to see you. Lisa, 420, ha- has it kind of lost its charm or its significance? Or, or is it a bit of a sellout type scenario, would you say, now that cannabis has gone legal? How different is 420 these days? Mostly because of COVID, though. So a lot of the stores have their doors closed out in Ontario, in Alberta. It's very limited. Uh, BC as well is in the middle of lockdown. So across Canada right now, 420 definitely has a different tone in that we're not in the streets. We're not celebrating. Uh, but there is a lot to celebrate and there's still a lot to fight for. So I think that as the years progress, 420 will come back as a holiday. And we might even have some new cannabis holidays uh, sprinkled in there. Yeah, there you go. Nathan, what does is, what is 420 mean to you? Did, did you wake up and did today feel any different than, than yesterday or maybe how tomorrow will feel? 
Well, I think, uh, uh, thank you very much for having us. Um, uh, I think yesterday was the federal budget. And I think it was a great example of why we can need to continue to, to push. There was not one piece of uh, documentation or legislation or regulation about the cannabis sector um, yesterday in a 735-page uh, document um, that talked about you know, deficits and growth and opportunities. And we're talking about a, a sector that grew $6 billion of GDP economic opportunity last year during a global pandemic, and now is only $2.1 billion from actually rivaling the um, automotive sector in Canada when it comes to GDP impact. So the fact that it wasn't talked about, it isn't talked about, it's the reason why 420 still matters. We still have a long way to go to break down stigma and get um, the politicians, bureaucrats and influencers to realize that the citizenry has moved on with cannabis, but they haven't. So I think there's still lots of work for us to do. And 420 is an important day to continue to drive that conversation. That's a great point, Nathan. I had no idea that that cannabis was so close to the auto sector with regards to GDP implications. <laughs> That's wild. Two point one billion dollars. Uh, Jonas, how has uh, over the years? I mean, 420. Uh, I, I mean, for a lot of people, it's, uh, you know, take the day off of work, get together with your friends, head down, find a sunny place to put down your 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 picnic blanket and and really enjoy the afternoon. Now, now here you are working on 420, but but you're growing what we believe to be Canada's best craft cannabis. How's 420 changed for you over the years? Um, honestly, it's uh, I mean, alongside of now that I actually do it day to day, cultivating the plant, it hasn't changed a ton. Um, kind of still celebrated. I mean, outside of COVID, we're not celebrating it, but uh, still kind of celebrated the same we have for many, many years. Um, with legalization of cannabis in Canada, it's been, uh, you know, it's been very exciting, obviously, for our country. Um, you know, there's been a lot of pros and there's been cons. And uh, for me personally, um, and, you know, for my, my, my friends and my family and my circle, um, we've kind of always celebrated Um you know, so legalization is, is definitely exciting, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still just doing our thing, really. Can you um, can you tell us what are, what are we seeing? Where are you right now? What are we seeing behind? I mean, aside from the obvious, but tell us what we're seeing yeah. here. Yeah, so I'm in one of our flower rooms. Uh, I'll go ahead and apologize if uh, my, my Wi-Fi ends up like cutting out or my video freezing or something, because it's a little bit spotty in, in our in our facility. We're all uh, insulated metal walls and all that. So I apologize ahead of time for that. But uh, yeah, this is this is one of our flowers, flower room number three. Um, we're growing out uh, a crop of our purple punch mints number eleven. We actually just did our first drop on the market of this strain uh, just a few weeks back, and we've had some great feedback. So this is another crop we're doing of it. Um, we're t we're taking this one down in uh, in ten days. So she's laid into flower. It's about it's about eight weeks into flower, and um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a beautiful in, room. I, I would I would agree. I'm enjoying watching Lisa listen to you because, Lisa, you've just you've got this smile smeared across your face. You you are all about helping brands, if I understand correctly, understand how to best tell their story. Right. And how to how to make an impact in in market. How, do, how did you get to this point? And what's that exercise like in what may have been up up until a few years ago, a pretty unconventional or untapped market, really? Oh. 
I would say the first year was uh, very interesting. There definitely wasn't enough product on the market. So a lot of companies got away with, you know, putting out product that was substandard. It wasn't up to consumers' expectations in terms of what they'd be looking for in transitioning to legal market. So now we're finally at a point where craft cultivators like Joy, like Dunn Cannabis, who we're uh, rooting for for the AR Cannabis Cup today, all these producers are finally starting to come out with quality product that's giving these bigger licensed producers a run for their money. So it's really exciting to see the small guys rising up and take market share. And we're definitely seeing a massive shift happening where um, a lot of micros are getting licensed as well. So for the first time, we're finally seeing excellent quality craft cannabis that consumers are willing to transition for. Yeah. What's going on today with this? Can you clarify? There's 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 kind of a this is coming down to the wire, right? There's a big competition underway. Yeah, so there's a huge competition right now on Instagram. Uh, we're representing Dunn Cannabis, which is a micro from Abbotsford, BC. They came from the legacy market. Uh, their product is available in BC and will be available in Alberta in the next week. They have Screwhead coming out as well as Karma that will be coming out under the Dunn Cannabis label. So you can uh, keep your eyes peeled for Dunn Cannabis and tuna cans coming across Alberta. And I'll be heading as well from BC. So I'm really excited to be in Alberta uh, by the first of May and to be selling BC craft cannabis in that market. Nathan, can you give our audience members an idea of how, like as, as we're hearing about these craft cannabis producers, and, and I don't know if it's a fair comparison or if it makes sense to compare them to the explosion we've seen with microbrews, um, where I've seen a lot of people wondering if the, if the beer market, if there, if there is enough room to support the dozens and dozens of, of microbreweries that have opened uh, in the past few years, uh, most especially in Western Canada and Ontario. But with regards to the growth of the cannabis industry, I mean, you've seen this almost from the ground floor up. Can you paint a perspective for us on, on how significant it's been? Yeah, I think, you know, there's some, so let's talk about craft cultivation for a minute, because I think it's really important talking about joy and, and what the work that Lisa does. Um, one of the things that's really important within uh, the parallels to micro to um, micro brewing is the ability to sell through point of sale and point of production. So craft brewers are allowed to grow, uh, or sorry, are allowed to brew and then sell. Craft growers in um, Alberta are not allowed to sell at the point of production. So for example, right there, you don't have the same capabilities. And because of the amount of stores and the low volume that, the lower volumes that crop producers do, you do not have an ability to sell directly to a store. So like when you have a, a, a micro beer, you are able to allocate it to a certain amount of stores so that it can be sold. We don't have that in the cannabis sector, actually primarily in Canada. So, you know, that ability to actually have a white label or a dedicated sales line really makes it hard for craft producers to crack into a regulated space where there's only so much SKUs and so many warehouses. So one of the things that we've been advocating for a long time is treat cannabis just like alcohol when it comes to its regulatory framework. What that allows us to do is open up a myriad of things. Um, We're in Alberta, so we can talk about that. Alberta um, the AGLC makes $800 million a year on alcohol sales through a consignment model. In Alberta, we in the cannabis sector have an actual purchase system where the AGLC purchases that cannabis at, from our, uh, with taxpayers' dollars that they then turn around and sell with an incredible markup on the top of that. That is very different. 
you're allowed to have inducements where um, if somebody wants to go to a game at a liquor store or to have a marketing campaign or something of that nature, we don't have that in the cannabis sector. When we talk about the opportunities in the future of what cannabis can be, something as simple as cannabis cafes or festivals, um, something where we have a parallel stream, you have an alcohol license, you have a cannabis uh, license. If you have a temporary special events alcohol license, you have a temporary special events cannabis license. So what we're advocating for, for people like um, um, your brother and um, Jonas and Lisa is the capability to actually have a dedicated sales channel for craft products in the same way as microbreweries so that we can keep that opportunity for cannabis to be treated like alcohol so that regulators and politicians can see it as an opportunity and it's easy for them to see the models between the two because in alberta we lose 15 million dollars a year on the cannabis sector for the aglc one makes 800 one loses 15 million it's a good parallel about where the system could be modified to make it much easier to bring craft products to market so that we can continue to displace the illicit market Jonas, what, what's it been like for you? Um, now, I'll notice there's also Joy as a, a company president, of course, that handles a lot of the sort of the business side. You're the operations manager. But what's it been like for you navigating a lot of the challenges that, that, that would have the potential to be somewhat frustrating? You're a craft grower, but there's a lot that goes into it, I would imagine, that would, that would have the potential to make life difficult. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of it uh, has just been time. It's just been the delays um, in getting uh, licensing and um, approvals and, you know, gaining your cultivation license. And when you gain your cultivation license, you're still months and months and months away from actually receiving a sales license. And then you're still months and months away from actually making some revenue. So, yeah, one of our biggest struggles has definitely been um, just carrying the company and, and building it all out and everything, um, you know, over a large span of time. I mean... This project uh, started in 2016, and we just made our first uh, sale in November 2020. So you got to imagine um, the difficulties uh, for funding, and I mean just patience, <laughs> just staying patience and staying strong, and and um, constantly like trying to keep wind at our backs and and get the get the facility up running and staffing it and all the stuff that comes along with running a facility that's up to GPP standards, uh, GMP, GPP standards. Um, and, you know, operating that facility and putting out all the product and, and employing all these people, um, you know, and then also trying to put out an amazing product, but with, with, with such a difficult way to sell it. And even then, once you do hit that sales channel, um, you know, like Nathan was alluding to, it's, it's no walk in the park um, either. It's not like you just all of a sudden, everything you have in your vault, you just sell off. It's, you know, it still sits and it's this, this slow trickle out, obviously, because you do have to get out there and you do have to make a name for yourself and you do have to get consumers after what you're putting out. Um, so yeah, that's been one of the biggest struggles, if that gives you a bit of an idea. Yeah, Lisa, how common is that story? I mean, have you heard this story a hundred times? Yeah, I've heard this story a hundred times. Um, I've also submitted Joy's product to the control board before under different brands. So I'm really familiar with this issue that 
you know, you can have your license, but that doesn't mean that you can sell your product and you can have incredible product. And that doesn't mean that your product is going to come to market per se. So I really do agree with Nathan and that we do need a consignment program in Ontario. We lobbied for a consignment program and we were just successful in that it's coming into effect this summer, you know, three years later after we submitted to the ministry of finance. So it's really exciting to see these programs uh, that are kind of standard in wine and spirits be adapted by cannabis in order to provide more path and more routes to market for craft producers. So for example, by the time we get to this fall, Joy will be able to put out a lot of 200 cases to Ontario. Uh, Once those cases are sold through, the lot will be released and he can partner with retailers to, you know, have it branded, you know, with their products. So all those uh, models that we're kind of adapting in Ontario, I do believe that the provinces are in touch with each other. They're seeing how these pilots are going. And I'm I'm really hopeful that, you know, BC is doing uh, consultations right now on Farmgate uh, with their producers. So, you know, Ontario already has Farmgate in our regulations. So really Alberta, you know, has a long way to go. Well, there's not much revenue there. They are really focused on social responsibility. So the reason why they're not making any money, it's because they're not marking up the product. So it's actually one of the easiest provinces to work with. They're like the fastest to pay you, the easiest to work with. It's a great system, but it's really, really hard for the smaller producers to have enough product to satiate that entire market. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy to see how much the industry has grown. And now finally in Ontario, we have more stores than Alberta. So we're now outnumbering Alberta stores and kind of faster when it comes to consignment. So we're hoping Alberta can catch up soon. Yeah. Well, I think, Nathan, you were responsible for opening about half the stores in Alberta, weren't you? <laughs> a couple of years ago, I think you guys... Felt like it. Felt yeah, like it. Yeah, it did. You, you, guys, you guys hit that hard. Um, it's It's been interesting to see. I was quoting some numbers earlier today that were released this morning from Mario Canseco with Research Co. And they were talking, um, they were talking about where Canadians get their cannabis. And it was interesting to see that, you know, those Canadians that were polled said that, that about 38% of them said that they acquired all of their cannabis at a licensed retailers uh, 31% they said they bought some of it from licensed retailers uh, 20% one in 5 say none of it came from a licensed retailer i'm curious to pick all your brains on this nathan we'll we'll start with you um it's been interesting to see cannabis legalized and see some you know some some evolution i think with regards to the the stigma and the prominence of it and the openness of of people enjoying cannabis uh but at the same time is it is it fair to say that the black or the gray market is still alive and well oh my it's Cafe, which is a very successful um, legal dispensary in Ontario, one dispensary of the year in Toronto last year, right? Um, two years into legalization, they won dispensary of the year. So it shows the fact that we still have a long way to go. And I think, you know, a combination of allowing entrance from the legacy market much easier. So to Jonas's point, it doesn't take four years to get a license um, where you can actually go from concept to sell. What other sector has that kind of uh, lag time? Um, none. Um, the markdowns uh, need to come down so that we can compete price per price. Um, if you think about normal consumer packaged goods, you know, people don't change their buying habits very easily. So one of the ways that you do that is on price and, and quality. And fortunately, not always are we able to match the legacy sector um, uh, still. 
and, and uh, some enforcement. And I think there's unique tools instead of going after individuals. You know, for bricks and mortar, something as simple as utilizing the tools at a provincial or at a municipal level, where if somebody's opening an illegal dispensary, don't give them the ticket, give it to the landlord. They're living off the avails of crime. So have them uh, sacrifice their uh, their legal limit. But in a, a 420, we should be celebrating. So we don't always want to look backwards. We have to think about the fact that um, of those sales, Stats Can primarily showed prior to legalization, 22 to 26 percent of Canada was consuming cannabis before legalization. That means 74 to 78 percent of Canadians haven't tried cannabis yet. And of that, 66% of Canadians who haven't tried cannabis for the first time say they want to try it in an adjustable manner. We haven't even opened that world yet. We haven't even shown what that world can be. Michigan and New York State have realized in the next, or have both put legislation forward, in fact, passed and approved legislation for consumption lounges, right? So we don't even know like the interesting thing about legalization is we're living it real time and we don't even know what we don't know. So, you know, we're still hyper-focusing on the part of Canadians who are consuming cannabis in the past while not focusing as much attention on the Canadians who haven't tried cannabis because we're not allowed to talk to them. We're not allowed to tell them the benefits and we can't um, market with products that make sense for what they am. So the opportunity, when you hear $17.5 billion, could you imagine if we transitioned half of that demographic in, um, that's a pretty significant opportunity for the market and for the sector, which will allow everybody ample share to build it here at home and then take it to the world. And I think those are simple things that we should be pushing and telling our regulators and our politicians, because cannabis can help lead a Canadian COVID recovery if we do some small things to get it there. Jonas, how do you how do you so when you read that, that that and I actually think that number is really low to reiterate one in five Canadians get get all their cannabis outside of legal structure. I actually think it's probably more than that. Um, that's just based on my, my anecdotal sense, my anecdotal observations. But how how would you evaluate the average Canadian consumer with regards to knowledge on the product? You know, I, I know I know a lot of people, for example, that would go shopping for cannabis and only base their purchase on, for example, the percentage of THC as an example. And I would imagine as, as a yeah. grower, uh, that would be kind of a frustrating position to be in. How do you commu- How do you tell the story of what you're doing? How do you draw in the new consumer? How do you attract people to a brand grown legally? Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think a lot of the purchasing right now is just based on THC and uh cost as well um and they kind of go hand in hand i mean if you have a high thc product you can sell it for a lot uh but unfortunately that in my opinion isn't the way it should be um it's kind of i I think what it's doing is it's kind of skewing the 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 real goal of cannabis cultivation because the, the goal should not be to just hit a huge number um the goal should be to put out fantastic product that smells good smokes good the actual physical effect that it gives you, whether you're looking at it as a medicine or as a recreational uh, product, um, you know, whether it's a mental thing for you, a physical thing for you, um, what's the bag appeal on it? Does it drop your jaw when you crack the jar? Does the smell, you know, hit you in the nose? You know, is the bud squishy, dense? Does it burn clean? Is there a white ash? Um, Those are the things that I think um, should be the basis of purchases. Um, but unfortunately, right now with education out there, it seems like most people, I mean, I've obviously talked to a lot of retailers 
and we have some on the line here as well um that you know it's and, and a lot of people admit it to me too like even my friends are like yeah i'll just go into a store and what's your highest thc for the, the cheapest price um and that's just that's just not what you want to be doing i think you want to be looking at um who produced it what's the genetics of it how are the effects um is it clean um how does it burn you know and to go to the burn going a little bit deeper into that um generally um with clean clean like it depends how you're consuming it let's say you're smoking a joint or or a bowl or whatever when you're smoking that product have a look at the ash does the ash burn clean does it burn white whitish grayish or is it kind of black um generally black can mean that there's a lot of nutrients left in the flower matter and the plant wasn't flushed properly or there was the best inputs were put in, put into it uh, relating to uh, fertilizers or pesticides. Um, and yes, this is still very present in the legal market. This is obviously a big issue in the black market and the black market has fantastic product. But you also have to look at the fact that while the black market's thriving and I, I'm not hating on that. I mean, it's just it's just there's going to have to be a long term transition into the legal market. But the black market's thriving because um, you know, the cost is cheaper and they can still put out good product. But the thing is, is that you don't know what did they what did they grow it with? What were the inputs they put in it? What did they spray on it? Was it was it an approved pesticide from CFIA or you know probably not. But you don't know that. And if it burns clean, great. I, there's a lot of black market growers who, who will do things right. Um, but I think there's a lot that won't. So you have to look also at the fact that uh when you buy legal products, you might be paying more, um, but we have to pay a lot more to cultivate it. Because, um, I mean, these facilities, they're not cheap to build. And yes, there's many different ways to build them. And we've learned a lot building this facility. Um, and we'll do a lot of things different next time. Um, we kind of went over the top on this one and it's a fantastic facility, um, state of the art. Um, but that's kind of where a lot of the cost comes from is how much it actually costs us to cultivate this. And obviously that price that you pay in the store is not what we get as a licensed producer. Lisa, I think that yeah, Jonas brings up an interesting point because I think if, if we do, and I don't want to be guilty of this all the time because I, I don't think that it makes sense and I don't think that you can always take you know alcohol and cannabis and compare them parallel all the time. I don't think that that's responsible. I don't think that it's accurate. However, I will say that there's really, I mean, generally speaking, maybe aside from the odd person that can get their hands on a bottle of, of screech or something, but there, there's really not like a black market for booze, at least not a prominent one. I don't think you'd say that that 20 percent of people that buy alcohol are buying it on the black market. I, I think it wouldn't even be two percent. Um, will cannabis always have a black market as Jonas describes it? Is this something that you think that Canada would transition out of? What do you see the future looking like in that context? I actually don't believe so. I mean, there's a black market for everything. There's a black market for, you know, designer purses or, you know, various things. But in terms of cannabis, uh, the prices are so low now in the legal market that they're, you know, basically the bottoming out the prices in the in the illicit market. So both in the illicit market where you're seeing like a pound of weed now costs under $500 where it might be like 2 to 3,000 before. Now in the legal market you're seeing product go for under a dollar a gram 
in the wholesale market. We're seeing ounces in Alberta for $99. So for the people that are saying that we can't beat the illicit market on price, 100% we are beating the illicit market on price. Flour is cheaper in cannabis retail stores right now across Canada than it is in the illicit market. That being said, there's always going to be competition and, you know, it, they'll continue to compete. But at a certain point, growing is not profitable when you make your prices so, so, so low. At the same time, in order to defeat the legacy market, we need the legacy market to be a part of the legal market. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in Alberta, they do hardcore due diligence on all licensed producers that are coming into that market. But at the same time, just because you've grown cannabis in the past, doesn't mean that you're a criminal and you deserve to be excluded from the market. So I think we've seen incredible progress from Health Canada in welcoming those producers in. Alberta's gotten a little bit tighter on due diligence, um, but that doesn't mean that if you're currently growing the illicit market that you can't use all of your experience and apply that to the legal market and be included in the legal market. So I think that the federal government has really realized that the only way to successfully eliminate the illicit market is by providing opportunity to legal growers and to give them the opportunity to get licensed and transition. Uh, Nathan, we're going to be uh, welcoming one of your colleagues, uh, Akanksha mm-hmm. Batnagar, in, in just a moment. So, but b- before we say goodbye to you, um, I wanted to ask you. You, you know, you're, you've you've worked as an executive. You've been in a number of different industries and a number of different businesses. And I know that that you and Jonas and and Lisa and, and I'm sure Akanksha as well will have different um, approaches to answering a question about stigma. But with regards to you and getting involved in cannabis and applying your experience, your corporate experience, and, and, and now working as an advocate, and we, and we listed your CV earlier, do you see uh, still or do you perceive still a stigma around people who work in or use, enjoy cannabis? Or do you think that's dissipating? Do you see movement there? I think it's dissipating at the citizen level. I think, you know, there's a lot of polling out there. There's a great uh, poll done by um, a GR company prior to the last election that showed 0.4% of Canadians would actually vote based on cannabis legalization. That was behind animal welfare. So I think the citizenry has moved on. Um, You know, cats aren't marrying dogs. Dogs aren't marrying cats. There's not a 200 car pileup in every community like we were told that it was going to be. Cannabis was already there. 22 to 26 percent of Canadians were self-admitting to Stats Canada that they were trying cannabis. The challenge is the the stigma is really firm still at the bureaucratic political level. And though the more we can do to incorporate the economics, I, I think, is the way that we can get people to care. Like when you talk about the fact that the cannabis sector grew by six billion dollars last year, the fact that it's bigger than the mining industry, the fact that it's bigger than it's almost the size of the auto industry, the fact that it's bigger than craft um, uh, brewing. I think there's lots of opportunity for us to change the conversation about uh, jobs um, and the opportunity that they have within it. Um, Canada, when I started in um, 2017, two nations on earth were talking about cannabis legalization. It's now 66, right? Like the opportunity for this to continue to move is expediting. And the greatest way that it'll, the stigma will change is for more people to see that, you know, 
it isn't the demon weed. It's not going to create promiscuity in women and men aren't going to run out of windows and suicide like the reefer madness thing that politicians sometimes must be watching prior to them talking about cannabis policy. So I, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to focus on what cannabis can be instead of when it looks backwards, cannabis, tourism and hospitality, medical, you know, to what Jonas was saying. We know about two cannabinoids in the plant primarily, CBD and THC. There's 140. What other medical benefits are in there? So I, I think we're just started to scrape the, the, the top of what it can be. And I'm proud to do my part because I have three kids who are going to grow up in a legalized cannabis world. And if I can do a small part with great leaders like this on this call to make sure that it isn't something that causes promiscuity and suicide, I think we've probably gone a long way. So let's keep pushing the, the politicians and the, and the people that are making the decisions to come up to where the citizens are because they're not yet. Hmm. Well said, uh, Jonas. Your your career was was in home building and and finishing construction. Mm -hmm. you're, J Jonas, you're a, a journeyman cabinet maker uh, who found his way into a career in cannabis. Have you have you perceived stigma, Jonas, around that, or, or do you see there to be less of a stigma now that we're a few years into legalization? Do you think people take your career um, as seriously as a craft cannabis grower as they did as a journeyman cabinet maker or home builder? I think so, or at least, at least I'd like to think so. <laughs> um, I do get some pretty good feedback. I think I think with it being such a new industry, not only being a new industry and also being such a different industry, um, kind of like, you know, the next prohibition, um, I, I get pretty good feedback and I feel like I do, you know, I feel like there isn't a large stigma against um, the majority of people that I talk to. Um, but at the same time, maybe the ones who are not talking to me are the ones who do have a stigma against, you know, what I do. And I, and I know that does exist, you know, and, um, you know, you wonder what the generations prior to us, you know, what would think what we're doing, but you know what, I have pretty good faith that, that they would be very accepting of it. And if you really look at like what we're doing here, you know, it's, it's in my opinion, of course, you know, I'm biased, but, it's it's fantastic it's we're, we're cultivating a plant it comes from nature it comes from a seed you know i gave you all seed bearing plants and herbs to use you know to reference a, a verse but uh i think it's um um i think it's about time i think it's been too long that this has been going on um i think it's too long that it's been illegal way too many people have lost their you know their lives to it um you know, going to prison and, and, and cannabis crimes and like Lisa alluded to earlier. And um, the, the stigma, I think, is going to it's going to stick around probably in some way, shape or form forever. Um, just like just like anything, just like stigmas around alcohol or fast food or everybody's going to have an opinion on it. Um, but you know what? When I come to work every day, um, I feel good. I feel right. I feel like what we're doing here is right. And I know I've talked to countless people who whose lives have been changed by cannabis, um, including myself. Um, just, you know, starting back in the late 90s when I when I was introduced to cannabis, I it's never gone away. Um, it wasn't a fad. There was no um, no reason not to really for me. Um, so, yeah, you know. And I think like like Nathan referred to, I think a lot of the stigma is still up at the, you know, political level. 
Uh, they still stigmatize us. Um, like Nathan and Lisa have said, is you know with um, certain rules with marketing and branding and what we can do and where we can sell our product and how much product we can have and why can I only drive my car you know over to my friend's house with 30 grams of cannabis? You know, is there a limit on alcohol? Like, can I can I only have one case of beer in my trunk? No, I can have 12 kegs in my truck, and a cop can't say anything. So, yeah, you know, there is still a stigma there for and, sure. Well, and and Lisa, you wonder what what may ultimately lead to that that kind of transition in a way in, in people's attitudes. And I would and I would suggest that probably a, a significant part of it would be people discovering on their own journey. And again, it's not for everybody, and that's not the purpose of this conversation is to convince everybody that cannabis needs to be part of their life. But but as we see more medicinal applications, as we see more holistic approaches to health, as we see people uh, potentially utilizing uh, cannabis in, in ways that may substitute out um, a reliance or a dependency or, or an inclination to, to, to enjoy alcohol on a regular basis. I mean, those are the things that would strike me as, as ultimately the most powerful potential to change people's minds. Would you agree? For sure. I mean, as a recreational company, we can't talk about the medical effects, but for sure people are looking to cannabis for health and wellness. It's definitely a trend that we're seeing across the board. Even here in BC, in the BC cannabis stores, which are the government stores, we're seeing consumers that would never walk into a cannabis store, stop in, kind of talk to their consultants, find out what CBD is, share their experiences. So I think now finally, consumers that were scared of cannabis before because of the stigma are able to explore what those benefits might be. Um, but we still have a long way to go. But I mean, it's so incredible to me as someone who's worked and studied in Alberta before legalization to see how night and day the stigma is now in 2021. You know, before if I smoked a joint outside a bar in Fort McMurray, I would get yelled at. People would say, hey, I'm going to fail my drug test. What are you doing? Of course, people are still being drug tested and, you know, workers are still being discriminated against for being cannabis consumers. But the stigma is really night and day to whereas before when I went to school in Alberta, I don't think I smoked weed for a year. I just didn't know where to get it. Yeah. You, you, can I add one quick thing? Of course. Can yeah. I just add one quick yeah, thing? Yeah, of course. Um, in the last 15 years, the average age of cannabis consumption has gone from 24.9 to 38.9. And the fastest growing demographic of consumption for cannabis in Canada as of right now is seniors, right? So could you imagine if we could actually talk about what the benefits of the plant are? Those things in and of themselves would show that um, there's more opportunity for this to be a product where three main things that people come in looking for anxiety, sleep, and pain, which we can't talk about. So, you know, the more opportunity that we have to change the rules, to create the conversation, the more opportunity it is for us to show people that this is something that they can have if they want in their everyday life. But those two statistics, I always think are a pretty powerful thing because those are key voting blocks as well. So yeah. uh, politicians might listen to that a little bit more um, than the 24-year-old. So, Yeah, that's a great point, Nathan. I didn't realize that about Canadian seniors. That's interesting. Another stat that was that, that jumped out at me off this Research Co. Uh, piece that was just released today uh, from Mario Canseco and his team, you know, more than three in five Canadians polled, 61% of Canadians think that companies should be able to administer drug tests to any employee now that cannabis is legal, not people that are operating machinery or pilots or truck drivers or crane operators, any employee 
Uh, 61% of Canadians think that they should be subject to drug tests. I think I thought that was pretty high. I was pretty surprised about that. Nathan, before we say goodbye to you, you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think one of the things that we should push forward to. So this is the third year of cannabis legalization. We have a a federal review of the Cannabis Act. And I think one of the things that um, cannabis has opened the conversation about is inebriation. Like, what is it to be inebriated? I have three kids. There's times where you haven't slept for days because kids are teething or fighting or something. Some people are sick. There is an inebriation for lack of sleep. We have an unfortunate uh, opioid crisis. There's inebriation in that, you know, long haul truckers, the utilization in Canada of methamphetamines. So if we're going to talk about inebriation and, and on-site testing, let's not make it just cannabis. Let's actually talk about inebriation and society's over-reliance on things that could potentially do that. And then maybe have some constructive conversations around what the roots are of that instead of just being like demon plant. Um, so maybe there's an opportunity to have a larger conversation about inebriation in our society out of some of that research. Yeah. Nathan Misson is the CEO of uh, Diplomat Consulting, also the chair of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's National Cannabis Working Group and past chair of the Alberta Cannabis Council. Um, Nathan, we're going to check in with one of your colleagues, uh, Kangsha Batnagar, here in a moment. Jonas and Lisa, hang tight for a second. Nate, thanks for doing this and a happy 420 to you. You too. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, good to see you, man. Uh, so Jonas you, and uh, Lisa, hang tight for a second and we'll welcome Akanksha into the conversation in just a moment. I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you that every Friday here on the show, we get into trash talk. It's how we wrap up our broadcast. Five minutes or so of well, us blowing off a little bit of steam in the most healthy ways, reading the emails that you've sent in to us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Of course, trash talk is presented by our friends at Local Waste for more than 25 years years they've been helping businesses big and small find solutions to their waste management challenges whether it's garbage recycling or both the team at local waste wants to work with you and they ought to compete for your business as well if you're dealing with 1-800 numbers never getting calls back from the big multinational company that has your business out of default why not check out localwaste.ca today they love to talk trash as you know and you can call them by their first names chris lauren and mikhail are ready to take your call today the team at sherwood and st albert dodge want to remind you that 2021 is a banner year when it comes to the jeep lineup including that grand wagoneer it's going to redefine the luxury suv with that iconic jeep brand since the late 1940s jeep has been the go-to for people that want reliability and design and of course at sherwood and st albert dodge they have those 2021 cherokee sports right now six grand off msrp on approved financing 34,990 for the cherokee sport 4x4 at sherwood and st albert dodge we're hanging out with uh, Lisa Campbell, who's the CEO, the founding CEO of Mercari Agency, Jonas Jesperson, my brother, who's operations manager at Joy Botanicals. And what a pleasure to welcome to the show. I have not seen her for quite some time, and it's great to reconnect with Akanksha Baknagar, uh, formerly uh, the president of the University of Alberta Students Union. I think that's the last time that you and I spoke, which would have been probably a few years ago now, an associate with Diplomat Consulting and managing editor of What? cannabis can be it's just launched today at what cannabis can be.com welcome to real talk and thanks for making time for us 
Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be back. And uh, yeah, the last time we did chat was when I was around the University of Alberta. So now I'm calling in from Ottawa, which is completely different location. Look at you go, which is awesome. I want to encourage people to follow Cannabis Can Be on Twitter. This is the new initiative. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, But let me ask you what I I asked Lisa and Jonas before. What, what What does 420 mean to you? Where's your head at today? I think my head is definitely just at stirring these conversations that people are talking about. It was so awesome listening to Nathan, Jonas, and Lisa talking about like the future of what it's like, the stigma of what currently is attached to uh, being involved in the cannabis industry, whether you're a user, whether you're not a user, whether you're a policymaker. I think it's just exciting to have these conversations and actually talk about what the future can look like because we're constantly still stuck in this stigma of like, oh, we legalized it three years ago and we haven't done anything since. So I'm pretty excited to talk about the future of it, especially with the three-year anniversary coming up in October. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I, I want to give Jonas and Lisa a chance to, to chime in on your new project, but why don't you take us into it? People can check out whatcannabiscanbe.com. It's a new site here. Um, you, you can see it on the screen for those that are watching here on YouTube. What's this all about, Akanksha? What's the point of this? So it actually originated out of a conversation that Nathan Meisen and Lisa Holmes and I were having about the fact that there is so much going on in the cannabis industry and there is not a single place where people are actually talking about what it could look like in the future. There's people talking about the policies. There's people talking about the fact that there are different types of uh, mixtures you can get with THC and uh, different. I don't even know what there what there could be, but what cannabis can be is essentially a place for people to just give us your ideas, be aspirational. Like if you want to see cannabis lounges, if you want to see um, people drinking in parks, and if you want to see little areas and parks for people to smoke cannabis, we just want you to be able to put your thoughts down, uh, write them out, and so that we can go and talk to government people about making those changes. Because when the government legalized cannabis a few years ago, they just legalized it and didn't actually think about what the repercussions would be like. So um, Nathan talked about this earlier, but there isn't this like crazy amount of people that are smoking at work now or who are, you know, taking edibles, but we want to make sure that there is a place for people who use cannabis or who don't use cannabis or whatever to actually have a centralized place to have those future thinking conversations. So yeah, check us out on the website for sure. Well, I want I want to give everybody here a chance to 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 dream or to look into the crystal ball or to and and I'm a hundred percent putting all three of you on the spot here. Um, and so Jonas, maybe we'll go to you first when you talk about what Akanksha is talking about, like like what cannabis can be. What what do you see two or three or five years from now that would be different than than what we are now? What's one thing? Uh, that you would say, here's what cannabis can be, Jonas. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that, that's a great idea, uh, by the way. I'll check out your website. That's awesome. I like that. Um, I think, yeah, getting conversations going on that, and we can kind of wrap our heads around what it could be. Um, for me, I see it just kind of, I mean, to go back to our previous uh, subject of the stigma is, destigmatizing it in the sense of maybe some lounges, um, places that you can go outside of your home um, where you can enjoy cannabis with friends, family, strangers, um, you know, go meet up in, in, in lounges or parks, like it's been mentioned. Um, I think education needs to be obviously more of a capability of the people that are producing and selling the product. I do understand where that comes from in a sense of um, 
you know, if you're looking at it as, as a medicine, I guess you don't want everybody, you know, just saying, oh, this is what I would suggest for that. Because at the end of the day, um, cannabis is a very unique product, um, almost just like everything else, to be honest. Maybe it isn't excessively unique, but when you look at the products that are in our lives, cannabis, um, caffeine, alcohol, sugar, fats, carbs, all that stuff is going to affect everybody's body differently. You know what I mean? Somebody will say, oh, that, that's an indica strain. That's got to be indicouch. You know, that's going to knock me out. But that's not the case, in my opinion. Again, um, you're going to um, you're gonna need to just try the product and see how it affects your body and how your cannabinoid receptors receive the multiple cannabinoids that are in that product. Um, and it's almost a little bit of an experiment every time, but it helps to be able to talk to people about it and know what certain strains and what certain cannabinoids have helped people. And then to go beyond that, to get into terpenes. So terpenes are obviously um, essential oils that are in everything. Uh, limonene is in lemons, you know, but it's also in cannabis. If you smell a strain, we have a strain here that smells very lemony and it's that's high in limonene and that terpene will affect your body as well. It's not all about the cannabinoids. So being able to discuss this um, openly amongst, you know, customers or friends or people is, is very important. So um, it's a couple things I think that I, I hope I hope advance forward. Um, and of course, you know, going back to like the actual quality of the product thing, it's not just all, all about looking at a, a number on a piece of paper and deciding that that's, that that's high THC. That's all I'm buying today. You know, we have a product here that's, it's around 16% THC and a lot of people would turn their noses up at that, but I absolutely love it. I would stand behind that product all day, every day. That product is called platinum scout. And we actually have that product in the market now. And I can promise you this. If you go purchase a seven gram container of that, you won't be disappointed. And if you are, I, I wholeheartedly apologize and you can no. personally message me. If I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll come pick it up and we'll, we'll offer a money back guarantee. Um, Lisa, when, when you talk there about, I should be careful, I'm joking by the way. Uh, Lisa, when, when you talk <laughs> about or when you dream about what cannabis can be, is there something that immediately comes to mind for you? Definitely. I, I think it can be exactly the way it was before legalization. So before legalization, we in Ontario, we had cannabis lounges. Uh, we had people smoking in parks. We had 420 celebrations. Uh, what we really want legalization to be is what cannabis is, which is a culture. We want our culture to be accepted. We want our businesses to be licensed. So um, definitely bringing back lounges, coming out with a licensing scheme for that would be super important. You know, last time I saw Nathan was actually a year ago at City Hall in Edmonton, and we were lobbying along with Aurora and other licensed producers for cannabis lounges. Unfortunately, it kind of went nowhere, but there definitely is an appetite in Alberta for cannabis consumption spaces. So I think that we need to keep on pushing and to bring that energy across the country. Um, we're really hoping that after COVID that there'll be an appetite politically for some of these policy changes that politicians have been talking about for years and agree that, you know, 
people need safe spaces to consume cannabis. And especially so many people who are in apartments right now during COVID, they have nowhere to go, right? So at the very least, they need to be able to consume it outside in public. So I'm really excited that, you know, it is legal in, you know, most places to smoke in public, but there's still lots of municipalities have banned it. So I think that's the hugest problem right now, especially during COVID with people who are locked in their condos. You know, you're in such tight quarters, you need to be able to smoke outside and consume cannabis, um, you know, in a safe way. So uh, while it's really been stalled with COVID, I'm hoping that as COVID lifts, that some of our licensed dispensaries and some of our, you know, licensed producers who are exploring farm gate retail can actually do things like have infused dinners or farmer's markets or concerts even. So I think um, there's definitely a blueprint in the United States for how things could be. Already they have licensing for cannabis events in California. Um, there's municipalities like San Francisco that have lounges, um, you know, Palm Springs, you can walk in, you can buy your cannabis and smoke it right there. So uh, I think this is just the beginning for Canada and we're going to see a huge, enormous amount of change in the next five years. Lisa, do you think that that people will transition away from smoking? I mean, there's always going to be people that want to take big bong rips or smoke joints, but do you see generally speaking it trending away from that and then maybe becoming a bit more palatable for people like people might say, you know, you don't have hookah bars anymore or, or cigar lounges have a difficult time, you know, getting approved or whatever the case may be. You can't smoke in restaurants anymore. Um, do you see cannabis going in that way as well? When we talk about a consumption lounge, maybe not being just about smoking per se. For sure. We're already seeing vaping as a huge trend. Of course, there's now concentrates that are coming out. Uh, so you've got things like honey oil, things that you can vaporize very easily or even infuse into your own cooking. So, um, you know, we're really excited to be working with craft producers like Boaz that are coming out, uh, you know, based in Calgary, they're coming out with these products. We're selling them in Ontario. We're selling them in BC. So it's so cool for us to be, you know, selling Alberta cannabis and selling the legacy products that consumers are looking for so a what what becomes of this exercise i mean obviously you collect some pretty valuable information it's essentially polling really right on on how canadians view their relationship with cannabis or what it might look like ultimately what comes of the exercise I think what we want to see is that Canada is just a start to the cannabis industry. You know, like we are, there's still several G7 countries that are looking to to legalize the product. New York recently just legalized it. It's big conversations in the States and, you know, making sure that countries like Mexico, um, you know, can learn from the cannabis industry in Canada. We have the actual opportunity to be a leader in cannabis infused culinary, like Lisa was talking about, or like Jonas was talking about with, you know, trying to explore different types of uh, re relationships with terpenes and stuff. So I think that the future is just, you know, give us your thoughts. If you want to see these things happen, uh, maybe Canada is the place for it to happen. We have the ability to do so. I don't see why we don't invest better uh, in creating, you know, a future where cannabis is something that is not only accepted, but is, you know, as normal as having a drink with your friends. Again, you can check out what cannabis can be.com. It's just launched and you can follow the project on Twitter as well at cannabis can be. Um, you can find Akanksha and you can find Lisa on Twitter. Jonas, we're still going to have to get you on Twitter, but you can follow Jonas on Instagram at double J's D U B B L E J's uh, Lisa Campbell, Jonas Jesperson, Akanksha Batnagar. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thanks for your advocacy. Thanks for your knowledge. Thanks for teaching us and a happy 420 to the three of you. Thanks for having us.
Happy. Happy 420, guys. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work. You got it. Thanks very much. Uh, really appreciate that conversation. And uh, Real Talkers, it's been interesting for me as well to to keep an eye on the live chat and just see uh, w- where a lot of you are at with regards to your relationship with cannabis. A lot of you saying, not for me, not my thing. Um, some of you indicating concern, or I've noticed some discussions there about, about young people, you know, those under the age of, of 25 or under the age of 21, talking about the developing brain. There's a lot of science there that's that's worth talking about um we want to know we're having some fun with this conversation but but this is not for everybody and that's perfectly fine um but it's given us some indication as well on on maybe some of the stories that we could dig into uh in future it's already two and a half hours into this broadcast samuel g brooks and and we have i did not look at the clock for probably the last hour me neither uh (laughs) i was just really enjoying the conversation all of a sudden i went oh geez live it's 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 11 o'clock mountain one o'clock eastern right now which means that we have just a a short period of time um to to get our uh selves refocused and ready to talk to the prime minister of canada today that's coming up at 345 mountain 545 eastern right here on our youtube channel if you're listening to us right now live streaming audio on mixler uh via ryanjesperson.com we'll also have that going again justin trudeau the prime minister of canada will join us today at 3 45 and we encourage you to join us live we'll also be playing highlights from that interview on tomorrow's show it's going to be a good one it's going to be a great afternoon whatever your 420 holds may the sun shine brightly on your face my friends may you find a reason to smile today for us it's having you here with us and we appreciate that greatly so we shall sign off for now if you liked what you heard today on the show go ahead and smash that like button we're starting to just ask for it brazenly now we know it's what's going to help this keep gaining some traction as we grow this show into what we believe it really can be and that's an incredible community thanks for being a part of it we'll talk to you soon